President Biden spent the day trying to reassure Israel his administration is invested in its security. Tomorrow he faces a politically fraught face-to-face meeting with leaders of Saudi Arabia. Our story is coming up on this Thursday, July 14th. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Also coming up, the Department of Transportation is taking action against airlines that have refused to issue refunds for canceled flights. It's also created a bill of rights for passengers with disabilities. We talk with New York City's health commissioner about the city's response to the monkeypox outbreak. And a woodpecker's brain takes a big hit with every peck on a tree. The way we see the head behaving is very rigid, like you would use a hammer hitting wood. So how come it doesn't get brain damage? Scientists say they think they figured out why. It's 401. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Nora Rahm. President Biden is in Jerusalem, where he and Israeli Prime Minister Yair Lapid signed a new declaration reaffirming the U.S. commitment to Israel's security. As we move forward together, partners in both security and in innovation, the United States and Israel defense sectors will cooperate in new high-energy laser weapon systems that can defend Israeli lives as well as lives of American service members. The joint statement also includes a commitment to prevent Iran from obtaining nuclear weapons. Italy's president has turned down the resignation of Italian Prime Minister Mario Draghi. Adam Rainey reports. By rejecting Mario Draghi's resignation, it is not clear if President Sergio Mattarella has bolstered Draghi's government or just extended it for a few more months. Draghi wrote up a resignation letter despite winning a confidence vote in parliament because one of the parties in his government, the Five Star Movement, abstained from voting. Earlier this week, Draghi said there could be no unity government without them. This political brinkmanship comes at a time of uncertainty for Italy. It is facing devastating drought, rising inflation, and political infighting over the government's hardline stance against Russia. For NPR News, I'm Adam Rainey. A federal judge has once again rejected a request from former Trump advisor Steve Bannon to delay his upcoming trial. NPR's Windsor Johnston reports he's charged with criminal contempt of Congress stemming from the House investigation into the insurrection. The judge rejected a motion from Bannon to delay the trial until at least October, saying the proceedings will begin on Monday as scheduled. In a court filing, Bannon's attorneys had argued that widespread media coverage could taint the jury pool. Bannon was indicted last year after he refused to cooperate in the House Select Committee's investigation of the attack on the Capitol. In a reversal of course last weekend, lawyers said Bannon had changed his mind after receiving a letter from former President Donald Trump that waived a purported claim of executive privilege. The Justice Department has dismissed Bannon's offer to testify as a last-ditch attempt to avoid accountability. Windsor Johnston, NPR News, Washington. Congress is honoring Herschel Woody Williams. He was the last remaining Medal of Honor recipient from World War II. He died last month at the age of 98. Williams is now lying in honor in the Capitol Rotunda. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi called him an American hero. In awarding Woody the Medal of Honor, President Truman called his unyielding determination and extraordinary heroism. Williams was a 21-year-old Marine corporal during the Battle of Iwo Jima in 1945. 
Right before the close, the Dow is down 142 points. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Good afternoon, I'm Lisa Mullins. Massachusetts has been producing more than 100,000 fewer housing units than needed to keep up with annual demand. That's according to a new report that finds the Boston area is among the worst performing regions for housing production in the U.S. WBUR's Simone Rios has more. The report by a nonprofit called Up for Growth finds the rate of underproduction doubled in Massachusetts between 2012 and 2019. Greg Vassell of the Greater Boston Real Estate Board says luxury housing is easy to finance and low-income housing is subsidized, but it's particularly hard for developers who want to build middle-class housing. When you take the price of land and then the, the cost of labor and the services, you know, permitting and things like that, you end up with a number that prices you out of the middle of the market. And Vassell says if the problem isn't fixed by lawmakers, more and more young professionals are going to be leaving Massachusetts for places where they can afford to own a home. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Simone Rios. Tonight, a musician returns to the area where members of the hate group Patriot Front allegedly assaulted them on July 2nd. They'll perform a free concert with dancers, poets, and other musicians. WBUR's Cristela Guerra has more. Charles Morel III says this show in the Copley Square Green was scheduled prior to the attack. It's a performance called Sweet Talk and centers around issues of social justice and race. The black artist says its meaning is now that much deeper. I'm still trying to pick up a saxophone to go out into the streets and continue. You know, it's just scary that I'm now in a world of my own thoughts where I'm like, am I safe to go out and play in general public? As a composer, music has always healed Morel. In this way, Morel plans to use music to offer beauty where there was violence earlier this month. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Cristela Guerra. For the first time this year, parts of the state are experiencing severe drought conditions. The U.S. Drought Monitor finds 21 percent of the state in a severe drought. That covers an area north and west of Boston, including all of Cape Ann. The entire state is classified as abnormally dry. A blend of clouds and sunshine out there right now could have some thunderstorms in certain parts of the region into the evening hours. Mainly cloudy overnight. Tonight, look for temperatures about 63 for tomorrow. Gorgeous day, mostly sunny, temperatures in the low 80s. 73 degrees now in Boston at 407. WBUR supporters include Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution for businesses of any size to attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one place. More at Indeed.com NPR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Elsa Chang. President Biden spent the day in Jerusalem working to reassure Israel that he is a loyal and trustworthy partner. He signed a security agreement with Israel's prime minister, vowing to make sure that Iran does not obtain a nuclear weapon. But there was a key difference in the way the two leaders spoke about this pledge. And to talk more about that, we're joined now by NPR White House correspondent Asma Khalid in Jerusalem. Hey, Asma. Hi there, Elsa. Hi. Okay, so I understand that you were in the room today when President Biden and Yair Lapid signed this pledge and spoke about it. What what stood out to you in their remarks? So both President Biden and Israeli Prime Minister Yair Lapid agreed that they want to make sure Iran never develops a nuclear weapon. But also what struck me is that when they came in front of cameras and microphones, the two leaders disagreed rather openly on the best way to make sure that does not happen. Uh, take a listen to the Israeli Prime Minister. Words will not stop me, Mr. President. Diplomacy will not stop me. 
The only thing that will stop Iran is knowing that if they continue to develop their nuclear program, the free world will use force. The only way to stop them is to put a credible military threat on the table. But when it came to President Biden, he was fairly clear that he still prefers to avoid a military option. I continue to believe that diplomacy is the best way to achieve this outcome. The Biden administration wants Iran to rejoin the nuclear deal, but the timeline for that is not clear, and the president has said he's not going to wait forever for a response from the Iranians. Well, Iran is, is going to be a huge topic when the president meets with other leaders from this region. For example, when he's in Saudi Arabia starting tomorrow, right? That's right. And historically, Saudi Arabia and Iran have been rivals engaged in these proxy fights across the Middle East. And the Saudis, you know, in addition to some of the other countries in the Arab Gulf, are also deeply concerned about Iran obtaining nuclear weapons. Right. And I imagine that'll come up when Biden meets with the king and the crown prince, which will be like one of the most anticipated moments on this trip, right? Because President Biden has been facing all of this pressure over his decision to visit Saudi Arabia in the first place. Right. And, and this pressure is because the United States' own intelligence community has assessed that the crown prince approved of the operation in 2018 to kill journalist Jamal Khashoggi. Uh, Biden was asked during a press conference today twice whether he would raise Khashoggi's death during this meeting. I always bring up human rights. But my position on Khashoggi has been so clear. If anyone doesn't understand it in Saudi Arabia or anywhere else, then they haven't been around for a while. I mean, so it sounds like he stopped short of explicitly saying he would raise Khashoggi's death? Mm-hmm. That's right. And, you know, certainly on the campaign trail, he calls Saudi Arabia a pariah over this. So, you know, we'll see how the two men interact tomorrow. But today, Biden emphasized that he sees Saudi through a broader lens. He said he does not want Russia or China, for example, to gain more influence in the Middle East. And one last question real quick, Asma, because tomorrow Biden will meet with Palestinian leadership. Usually when a U.S. president goes to the Middle East, there is always some discussion about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. So I'm curious, how is Biden approaching that? You know, Biden has reiterated multiple times that he supports a two-state solution to the conflict, but he hasn't put a whole lot of diplomatic muscle behind that. Um, he's hoping to repair the U.S. relationship with Palestinians. That was almost uh, severed under the former president. So Biden tomorrow will start that by meeting with Palestinian leader Mahmoud Abbas. That is MPR's Asma Khalid. Thank you, Asma. Happy to talk. Tomorrow, Biden plans to go to a hospital in a Palestinian neighborhood of Jerusalem that U.S. presidents have not visited in the past. Although Biden referred to Jerusalem as Israel's capital, he'll be making the visit without Israeli officials, seen as deference to Palestinian ties to the city. He's expected to announce millions of dollars in U.S. money for the Palestinian hospital network in Jerusalem. NPR's Daniel Estrin takes us inside two of those hospitals to explain the bigger meaning of Biden's visit there and what money can and cannot accomplish. When President Biden visits Augusta Victoria Hospital atop the Mount of Olives, he'll see a hundred-year-old stone building with a tall bell tower piercing Jerusalem's skyline and angels carved into the arched entrance. If Biden had the time, he could wander the grounds and see a microcosm of Palestinian life and its daily limitations. 
Biden would be able to meet 27-year-old colon cancer patient Nuha Hassanin, who says her health got worse while waiting months for Israel to approve her security permit just so she could leave the blockaded Gaza Strip to get here, the only hospital offering radiation treatment for Palestinians who live in the occupied territories. Or Biden could visit Dr. Ruba Rizik's pediatric open-heart surgery ward. This patient from Gaza, the, the other one is from Gaza, this is from West Bank. Biden could see them, but visits from their parents are restricted by Israel. They are not allowed to come every day. They have a permit, but for a few days. The neonatal unit has premature babies from Gaza, but the doctor in charge says sometimes their mothers don't have permission to stay with them in Jerusalem. All this is part of Israel's control of Palestinian movement, which Israel says it needs for security. The U.S. used to give these hospitals $25 million a year, but President Trump stopped that to pressure Palestinians on a peace deal with Israel. The Biden White House is reversing that and plans to announce more money tomorrow. Makassid Hospital Director Dr. Adnan Farhoud will use the money for kidney and liver transplants not accessible now for West Bank and Gaza Palestinians. We are planning to do liver transplant and kidney transplant and bone marrow trans, uh, transplant because we don't have these uh, services. The new money helps the cash-strapped Palestinian leadership stand on its feet. That stability is important to the U.S., which doesn't want the region to devolve into violence. When I asked the hospital director, who will meet the president tomorrow, what else he wishes Biden could give, he said. Let democracy build all over the world, not even in just in the United States. In the Western countries, they have elections each four years, and the people, they can vote and they select their presidents. He means elections for new leadership. Palestinian Authority President Mahmoud Abbas is in the 18th year of what was supposed to be a four-year term. The U.S. has not pressed for elections, concerned the Hamas militant group could win. Hospital fundraiser Suhail Miari has another wish. The money is not enough. What we are suffering from, allowing people, the, the moving in Palestine, south and north and Gaza, and, you know, we are, we are not terrorists, we are human beings, we are t doctors, we are teachers, we are, we are you know, and everybody, they put, they put us in, in one, you know, in, in, in one category. He's happy that Biden will be the first sitting U.S. president in this part of East Jerusalem, not just the old city's holy sites, but here on the Mount of Olives. Miari sees that as Biden's gesture toward Palestinians' dream of their own capital here one day. Daniel Estrin, NPR News, Jerusalem. It has been a chaotic start to the summer for many travelers as airlines struggle to meet surging demand. Tens of thousands of flights have been delayed or canceled. And now the Department of Transportation is stepping up pressure on the airlines on three fronts. The denial of refunds for canceled flights, charging extra fees for families to sit together, and the treatment of passengers with disabilities. NPR's David Shaper reports. Just how bad is it to fly this summer? I'm not speaking hyperbolically, but I can tell you, David, that um, this is the worst I've ever seen in the 37 years I've been around this industry. Bill McGee used to work in airline operations and is now an aviation consumer advocate with the American Economic Liberties Project. The fact is the airlines, their performance this summer is just absolutely awful. And I think, you know, there's going to have to be a reckoning. 
Consumer complaints against airlines so far this year are up more than 300% over pre-pandemic levels. So Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg said on Fox News Sunday that airlines need to fix their operations and improve customer service. Here's what we're doing about it. We'll collaborate with airlines when they're ready to take steps that are positive and proactive, uh, whether that's improvements in pay that are helping with hiring or flexibility in customer service. We're also going to enforce passenger and consumer rights. Along those lines, Buttigieg says the department has now concluded 10 investigations into airlines denying refunds to customers for canceled flights and that fines will likely be announced soon. And he says the DOT has launched 10 more such probes. But consumer advocates like Bill McGee are not satisfied. The investigation should have been over two years ago. McGee says there have been thousands of complaints against airlines for denying refunds for canceled flights since the start of the pandemic, and the DOT has been slow to act. The DOT is also telling airlines they'll face stricter regulations if they don't stop charging extra fees for families to sit together. Most airlines charge fees for preferred seating, like window and aisle seats, and for seats closer to the front of the plane. That can make it difficult for families with young children to book seats together without paying extra. Again, consumer advocate Bill McGee. And it's just mind-boggling that the airlines, of all the different ways they find to charge us fees and nickel and dime us, to do this, you know, separating young children, it's just absurd. And the DOT announced last week its first-ever Bill of Rights for Passengers with Disabilities. Kenneth Shiatani of the National Disability Rights Network says it spells out that passengers with disabilities are entitled to seating accommodations and assistance, among other rights. I do think that the important provision is the first one, which is the right to be treated with dignity and respect. I mean, we think that that's, you know, a very clear message to the airline industry and the airports. Shiotani says as difficult as air travel has been for most travelers this summer, it's especially trying for those with disabilities. He and others hope the Disabled Passengers Bill of Rights will usher in improvements in passenger assistance and service for everyone. David Shaper, NPR News, Chicago. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up on All Things Considered, the brutal trench warfare-style fighting in eastern Ukraine is leaving soldiers traumatized. There are concerns now about the psychological legacy the war with Russia will leave behind. The Dow lost about a half percent today, 143 points to close at 30,630. S&P gave up ground as well. It fell about a third of a percent to finish down at 3790. NASDAQ gained a small fraction of a percent to end the day at 11,251. Marketplace has details at 630. It's now 419. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Zevin Asset Management. Committed to impact investing and building socially responsible investment portfolios for 25 years. Zevin.com slash WBUR. And Comcast Business. Helping protect small businesses with Comcast Business Security Edge. Powering possibilities. Comcast Business Internet required. Restrictions apply. 
The independent Harvard Bookstore in Cambridge is opening a branch at the Prudential Center in Boston. The shop will be in the area that previously housed Barnes & Noble. That space is about five times the size of its Cambridge venue. It'll include a large selection of children's literature and event space for lectures and classes. This is the first time the Harvard Bookstore has had a second location in its 90-year history. In the forecast, a nice afternoon, sunshine and clouds. Some areas could get hit with drenching rains and thunderstorms this afternoon into the evening. Overnight tonight, cloudy, eventually turning clear. Temperatures about 65. Then for tomorrow, sunny and nice. Highs about 81 degrees. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Focus Features with Mrs. Harris Goes to Paris, Leslie Manville plays a 1950s housekeeper who discovers the dress of her dreams and transforms the house of Dior in theaters tomorrow. And from the Nature Conservancy, partnering with communities across the globe to find solutions to the climate and biodiversity crises, committed to building a future where people and nature can thrive. Learn more at nature.org. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Ari Shapiro. The brutal fighting in eastern Ukraine evokes memories of World War I. Soldiers are dying in trenches. Artillery rains down. The violence can be difficult to comprehend. And as NPR's Nathan Rott reports, there are concerns about what this type of warfare could be doing mentally to those on the front lines. Through three sets of plastic barriers in the back corner of an infectious disease hospital in southeast Ukraine, two Ukrainian soldiers are resting on narrow cots. Konstantin, who's recovering from shrapnel wounds in his leg, is playing solitaire on his phone. You winning? Always winning. Sergei, who's dealing with an illness and severe concussion, sits up to greet us. How are you? Normal. Okay. Doing okay. It's okay, yeah. <laughs> We've agreed not to give Sergei or Konstantin's last names, as is now protocol with the Ukrainian military. We've also agreed not to reveal the exact location or name of this hospital. Medical facilities, like schools and shopping malls, have become a common target in Russia's war. War is a terrible thing. Terrible and made worse, both soldiers say, by the unusual type of war this has become. Sometimes you just lie in the trench with your gun, Konstantin says, and you think, why do I even need this gun? Because there's nobody to shoot. The fighting is all happening from a distance. Still, he and Sergei, who narrowly avoided being blown up when he got his concussion, plan to return to the front lines. You want to go back. Even after having an explosion happen right next to you? I will be there for my country, for my children when I get better, because they outnumber us. That's why we have to go back and we have to protect our country. This is something that Alexander Federitz hears all of the time. Federitz is a psychologist who meets with Ukrainian soldiers back from the front line. 
We've met him in a city park in Dnipro next to a memorial for soldiers killed in eastern Ukraine's 2014 conflict. The thing that brings trauma is not because they have to survive the fighting. It's that they can't fight back and they can't get their wounded. That makes the most difficult. By even the most modest estimates, tens of thousands of people have died since Russia's invasion began. Military casualties are closely guarded by both sides, but Ukrainian officials have said that as many as 200 of their soldiers are dying every day. Hundreds more are wounded, and it's the job of licensed therapists like Federitz and his colleague, Tatiana Yermolaeva, to meet with them to assess whether they're mentally and emotionally ready to return to the fight. This war is still very different. Uh, even people who are experienced, experienced soldiers, they are broken because of what they see, all the violence that they face. Then there's the civilian soldiers, Yermolaeva says. More than 100,000 civilians have enlisted in Ukraine's territorial defense since Russia invaded in February. Many of the people Yermolaeva has met with were teachers, store clerks, drivers, until just a few months ago. The only war they'd seen was in movies, but they wanted to help. That was the case for the 20-year-old son of Alesa Olhovic, another Dnipro-based psychologist who's been meeting with soldiers. Olhovic's office is decorated with stuffed animals, entertainment for the families she's been meeting with who have had to flee their homes. Nobody in Ukraine is able to really relax, she says. There's a background tension from air alarms and missile strikes. But for soldiers like her son, it's all pronounced. For example, she says, we went on a drive with my son in the countryside this weekend, and he tried to check the situation around him all of the time. He's just super alert. Yes, yeah, super alarmed. Mm -hmm. This is uh, know-how that people from the front. Ohovic and other psychologists NPR talked to for the story say the real challenge will come later, after the war. Many of the soldiers they saw in the years after the 2014 fighting suffered from post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD. But Ukraine isn't post anything yet, they say. There's a meme in Ukraine now, Olkovic says, that jokes, look for a good psychologist now, because it'll cost a lot more after the war. Yes. <laughs> I mean, I, I appreciate that Ukrainians have so much humor, <laughs> given everything. Black humor is the most uh, important thing in our life, yes. And it will be needed, she says, for a while yet. Nathan Rott, NPR News, Dnipro, Ukraine. In Russia, the trial of U.S. basketball star Brittany Griner on drug smuggling charges resumed today. It was Griner's first hearing since she pleaded guilty last week to charges that could mean a prison term of 10 years. From Moscow, NPR's Charles Mames was at the courthouse and has this report. During Brittany Griner's last hearing, the WNBA star admitted she accidentally left vape cartridges containing hash oil in her bags as she arrived to Moscow for off-season play last February. But today, Griner didn't testify. Instead, it was a chance to hear from those in Russia who knew Griner best. 
Maxim Rybko, who runs Griner's Russian team, UMMC, in the city of Ekaterinburg, took the stand as a witness in her defense. He described recruiting a basketball prodigy to come play in a far-off land back in 2014 and the impact it had on both of them. Brittany liked Russia, and she came to help us, said Rybkov. And Griner, he said, was an irreplaceable part of the team's success, not only winning championships at home but in Europe and winning over Russians to the game of women's basketball, as he told NPR in an interview after the hearing. Russian people, our Russian fans, love her because of her being the sportsman and the personality as she is. UMMC captain and former WNBA player Yevgenia Bilyakova also testified. She described Griner as the heart of their team and an active presence off the court, joining teammates for meet and greets with Russian kids and even supporting Katrinburg's local animal shelter. Our team is our family. It's like bad things happen to all of us and it's very important to be with the this person. So we need her, she needs us, that's it. Greiner, who listened through an interpreter as she sat in a locked cage in the courtroom, was clearly moved by her friend's testimony, a fact that in turn clearly moved them. Again, UMMC's Maxim Rybkov. It's maybe the first time in seven years when I saw her crying, and I cannot understand even how hard it's, it's for her the recent five months, and uh, I really hope she will fight through it. Rykov said UMMC had been quietly playing a role in Griner's legal defense and lobbying for her outside the media spotlight. Uh, we're very careful in speaking in order to escape any harm to her. Griner's arrest and trial has unfolded against the backdrop of cratering U.S.-Russian relations over the Kremlin's actions in Ukraine. Yet even as the White House has labeled Griner wrongfully detained and faced growing public pressure to bring her home, Russia has suggested a prisoner swap might be in the offing. But Russia's foreign ministry today said that would only happen behind closed doors and only after the trial had run its course. Charles Maines, NPR News, Moscow. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up, how New York City is handling its outbreak of monkeypox. Also, a move to unionize among dancers at a strip club in Hollywood. The dancers say their occupation is dangerous and they need protection. Tonight, the Red Sox get one more chance to top the Tampa Bay Rays as they play their fourth game out of four in this series at Tropicana Field. Red Sox have lost seven of their last ten games. Cutter Crawford pitches for Boston tonight. Pretty nice afternoon going. Sunshine clouds taking turns. Some areas could get hit with thunderstorms and soaking rains into the evening. Overnight tonight, ultimately clear, about 65. Sunshine tomorrow, highs about 81 degrees. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Porter Square Books and BU's Center for Anti-Racist Research, presenting W. Kamau Bell and Kate Schatz on August 5th. Tickets at portersquarebooks.com. And Cityside Subaru in Belmont with the all-new 2022 Subaru Outback Wilderness Edition. It's summer of love at citysidesubaru.com. Tim Miller begins his new book, quote, America never would have gotten into this mess had it not been for me and my friends. A self-described normal Republican, after Trump, Miller broke with the party. But in his book, he talks to many other Republicans about why they did not. Miller describes a world where politics is a game and ethical emptiness a mark of sophistication. That's On Point tonight at 7 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. 
On day two of his Middle East trip, President Biden signed a joint declaration with Israel's prime minister that includes a commitment to prevent Iran from acquiring a nuclear weapon. But as NPR's Daniel Estrin tells us, both leaders diverged on how best to deal with Israel's neighbor in the West Bank. First, Biden opened his remarks mentioning that he was in Israel's capital, Jerusalem, and that is him endorsing former President Trump's policy change, recognizing Jerusalem as Israel's capital, even though Palestinians also have ties there. Both Biden and Lapid mentioned Palestinians, but again, with different emphasis. Biden said he believes in creating a Palestinian state in uh, some of the territories Israel controls now, so that Israel stays a Jewish and democratic state. Lapid said that's his personal position as well, but he's a caretaker prime minister. This is not a consensus position in Israel. That's NPR's Daniel Estrin in Jerusalem. Biden's next stop is Saudi Arabia tomorrow. Diplomats from Russia and Ukraine have been meeting in Turkey. The goal there isn't a ceasefire, but negotiating a plan to resume grain shipments through the Black Sea. NPR's Brian Mann explains. Russia has blockaded Ukraine's port since its invasion began in late February, choking off supplies of Ukrainian grain desperately needed, especially in developing countries hit by drought and famine. After Wednesday's talks, top Ukrainian official Andrei Yermak said on Twitter he expects to reach a deal under United Nations auspices that will allow shipments by sea to resume. Yermak said a new organization will be formed to coordinate safe navigation of the Black Sea during the war. Turkish officials who brokered the negotiations issued a statement saying a basic agreement on food shipments has been reached, but the deal isn't yet final. More talks are expected next week. Brian Mann, NPR News, Kyiv. Stocks finish mixed on Wall Street today. You're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. The Boston Teachers Union and the Boston Public School District have tentatively agreed on terms for a new three-year contract. As WBUR's Kara Young reports, it includes significant new support for teachers who work with students who have special needs. Some of the biggest updates in the contract will address a major change to district policy next year. Starting in September, the district will make sure all of its schools can support high-needs students in the same setting as general education students. Currently, only a handful of schools have the resources to do that. Teachers Union President Jessica Tang praised Mayor Michelle Wu for her work in the negotiations. We have leaders in the city who believe in the power of labor and believe in the power of real relationships and the importance of building trust. Other contract provisions include a 2.5% yearly wage increase and an expansion of the parental leave policy. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Carrie Young. The MBTA says it's met all deadlines federal regulators put in place last month to improve safety on the transit system. The Federal Transit Administration ordered the T in June to address understaffing, put in place new safety protocols, speed up maintenance, and ensure workers have up-to-date certifications. The T said today it has either done all those things or has a plan to do them. The FDA is expected to issue a report next month on its investigation into safety problems on the T after a series of derailments and the dragging death of a passenger. Massachusetts Correction Officers Union is asking Governor Charlie Baker to reinstate officers who lost their jobs because they did not get vaccinated against the coronavirus. WBR's Deborah Becker has more. The union's board wrote a letter to Baker saying he should reinstate the 100 officers who were terminated because they did not get the vaccine. Kevin Flanagan, legislative representative for the Massachusetts Correction Officers Federated Union, says because COVID protocols have changed, the officers should get their jobs back. Policies have changed. 
Um, there's no masking requirements inside of our prisons. There's no COVID vaccine identification uh, needed to enter any of the, our facilities. So we're just hoping the governor takes a look at this. The union sued over the governor's vaccine mandate, and that suit is pending. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Deborah Becker. Governor Baker's office has not responded to a request for comment on the letter from corrections officers. In the forecast, many parts of the region should see the sunshine over the next few hours. Other areas could see isolated thunderstorms along with strong winds and drenching rain. Could have localized flooding as well. Overnight tonight, cloudy skies for the first part of the night, then turning clear. Lows about 65. Tomorrow, clouds move on out. Sunshine comes back in. Pretty comfortable. Highs about 81 degrees. This is WBUR. It's 435. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Subaru with the 2023 Subaru Crosstrek, an SUV with standard symmetrical all-wheel drive and an available 182 horsepower engine. Love. It's what makes Subaru, Subaru. And from UMA, a cloud-based phone service for businesses of any size that comes with an automated virtual receptionist, video meetings, and mobility features to connect to customers and coworkers anywhere. More at OOMA.com. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Ari Shapiro. The CDC says more than 1,000 people in the U.S. are known to have monkeypox. The disease rarely leads to hospitalization or death, but the CDC's numbers are likely an undercount since there isn't much testing. New York is one of the country's biggest hotspots for the disease, and the vaccine rollout there has been glitchy and crashy. The city health commissioner, Dr. Ashwin Vossen, apologized yesterday for the mistakes, and he joins us now. Welcome. Great to be here, Ari. Thank you for having me. New York confirmed its first monkeypox case in late May. How would you rate the city's response since then? I think we have tried to attack this with urgency, which is why we launched the first monkeypox clinic in the country in late June. And I think as a direct result of that clinic and the attention it garnered, we really pushed the national conversation forward. I don't think we'd be here as quickly as we are with a national vaccine strategy and the attention we're getting on monkeypox now if it wasn't for New York City leading the way. That said, and as I said yesterday, obviously there's been some technical and logistical glitches that we're working to iron out now. We just launched an announcement announcing how we're going to use the 14,500 doses that we received this week from the federal government and how we're doing that on a more stable vaccine appointment infrastructure. Yeah, I I, kind of want to parse the response here because getting more attention paid to the problem means getting demand for tests and vaccines. And when that demand can't be met, you find a lot of anger. Uh, We heard yesterday from a New Yorker named Cody Dean who was trying to make an appointment for a vaccine. And as you know, the website just crashed. Here's what he said. I own a technology consulting business. I have the privilege of sitting here for 90 minutes to get through every step here. And I I was still unsuccessful. I, I seriously doubt that someone working in a retail job in another borough could do that. Why was the runway that the city has had not enough to get the infrastructure ready for what you knew would be an onslaught of demand for a limited number of vaccines? You know, we have a vaccine appointment infrastructure that we built for COVID, and it's being used basically to its maximum bandwidth. And we had to create a new build, and that wasn't available fast enough to meet the supply that we were getting in. And so we relied on vendors to use their technology 
and it wasn't sufficient. And so we own that and we apologize to New Yorkers who had a bad experience here. I will say this though, we are trying to balance the public facing appointments with pretty strong partnerships with community-based organizations and providers with whom we're giving direct access um, so that we are ensuring that we're centering equity as well in the process. So while there are a lot of glitches or there have been glitches with the public facing side of things, um, we are partnering with community organizations to ensure that this is being rolled out in, in a more equitable way. You've said the federal government is providing about 14,500 doses. Do you know what the demand is? How wide is the gap there? I think the gap is significant. I think what you're seeing just anecdotally is that the thousands of appointments we've put online have been snapped up in minutes. There are multiple ways of estimating a population in need, but I think we're talking on the order of tens, if not over a hundred thousands of people in New York City alone that could be eligible for this vaccine. And so, as you can see, we've had about in total 20,000 doses delivered to New York City from the beginning of this response, and we have a long ways to go. We've been talking about vaccination, but part of the challenge of getting a disease like this under control is understanding the scale of it. And tests, as we've said, are also scarce. Um, When do you think widespread testing will be available? Absolutely, Ari. I'm an epidemiologist, and it's so challenging to try to fight a pandemic in an environment of low testing when you don't really know the denominator. We are encouraged by the fact that we've seen at least two commercial labs come online in the recent days, and I think there are about five that are partnering with the federal government to come online to give clinicians much more access to testing, but that needs to happen fast to get our arms around what's actually going on. A lot of public health experts have looked at the response to the monkeypox outbreak in the early months and said these are the same mistakes that were made in the early days of COVID. Why weren't those lessons learned? Do you think that's a fair assessment? I think the the frustration of the public the frustration of, in particular, the affected community in this outbreak and epidemic is totally appropriate. People demand better from government, and government should be a force for good in people's lives, and it is. And when it doesn't perform, we need to hold ourselves accountable and stand up and say we didn't do what we needed to do. But we also have to diagnose the problem accurately, which is to say, did we have the resources to do what we needed to do? Did we have the time? to do what we needed to do. And I think in this case with monkeypox, and while we're continuing to fight COVID, I think that what you found was a public health system that has been shorn of workforce with incredible rates of burnout and mental health issues amongst uh, healthcare workers and public health workers. And I think that what we need to do is support that infrastructure, support those workers so that we can manage multiple crises at once, which is what we're in the midst of doing. That's New York City Health Commissioner Dr. Ashwin Vossen. Thank you very much. Thanks, Ari. Appreciate you. A woodpecker's brain takes a big hit with every peck. But these birds don't experience brain damage. And NPR's John Hamilton reports on a team of scientists who think they have figured out why. The brain of a woodpecker goes through a lot. Just ask Sam van Wassenberg of the University of Antwerp in Belgium. He's been studying precisely what happens to a bird brain when beak meets wood. When you see these birds in action, hitting their head against a tree quite violently, then as humans, we start wondering, how does this bird avoid getting headaches or brain damage? 
Scientists have been trying to answer that question for decades, and one very popular idea has been that the woodpecker's skull absorbs some of the shock to protect the brain inside. Van Wassenberg wasn't convinced. Nobody has ever explained it very well, in my opinion. So he and an international team decided they could do better using high-speed video. We went to four different zoos in Europe where they had woodpeckers, and we recorded them at very high frame rates while they were pecking. Van Wassenberg says the videos revealed some remarkable details. They close their eyes at the moment they, they impact the wood. And this is, this is to protect that there are any splinters that are jumping up the, the tree would hit their eyes. The videos also showed that woodpeckers' beaks often get stuck in the wood, but a clever two-part design allows them to break free almost instantly. What the videos did not show is any sign that the woodpecker's brain is somehow cushioned. The way we see the head behaving is very rigid, like you would use a hammer hitting wood. So the woodpecker's brain takes the full impact of every peck. Van Wassenberg says that means the organ experiences deceleration five times higher than what it would take to cause a concussion in a human brain. But he says a woodpecker's brain is protected, not by cushioning, but by its tiny size and weight. An animal that has a smaller size, it can withstand higher decelerations. That's a biomechanical law. And he says a woodpecker's brain is about 700 times smaller than a human brain. So that's why uh, even the hardest hits that we observed are not expected to cause any concussion. Or even a headache. The study appears in the journal Current Biology. John Hamilton, NPR News. Thank you for listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Exotic dancers in Hollywood are fighting to unionize. They want to create the first U.S. strippers union since the 1990s. From KCRW, Robin Estrin reports. When the pandemic shuttered businesses, Reagan, a stripper with 10 years experience and a degree in women and gender studies, did what a lot of workers did to survive. She took her business online. Dancers started to create virtual shows that took out all of the middlemen. Online, dancers got to be their own bosses and their own bouncers. If anyone is acting out of line or being rude or harassing us, we can just block them. When Star Garden topless dive bar reopened, Reagan returned to work there. She says it wasn't the same. We felt more disposable, probably because we knew that it didn't have to be that way. So it, it felt even more acute. We're using a stage name for Reagan and other dancers. They're worried about being targeted and staying safe. Safety is also why the dancers are fighting to unionize. They say the club's owners prohibit security guards from intervening on their behalf. I had never heard that from a security guard in my life. You're not allowed to intervene. Isn't that your entire job? What are you doing then? <laughs> You're just standing around for decoration? Dancers who spoke out with concerns, including Reagan, say they were fired. Mid-March, Reagan's co-workers walked out in protest. Then they say management locked them out. The club's owners and attorney did not respond to multiple requests for comment. Vina Dubal, a labor law professor at UC Hastings, says stripping is dangerous. A lot of the people who do this work experience a lot of bodily injury, so it's the type of work that really needs workplace protections in place. Duval says a strip club is a unique work environment. 
but the issues dancers face on the job are not, like wage theft and misclassification by employers who are skirting the law. When people can't turn to the state, when they can't turn to their bosses, they turn to each other. Star Gardens dancers have been picketing outside the nightclub for months. They're trying to hit the club owners where it hurts, in the pocket. Here, a dancer named Velveeta is trying to turn away a customer. A young guy named Jacob Rozier has parked his white pickup truck in the lot, and he's trying to walk into the club. Yeah, it's like really... No, if, you feel, if you feel like you're unsafe, then no, you have every right to call the security Yeah, exactly, guard. exactly. Right. So Rozier from Texas ended up in the club anyway. To successfully unionize, the dancers will have to enlist the support of the National Labor Relations Board, the agency that oversees union elections. Here's Duball, the attorney again. They have an extra hurdle. They have to prove that they're employees before they can benefit from any of the federal labor rights including the right to unionize. That's a right afforded to employees, not independent contractors. And strippers are regularly misclassified. If the NLRB sympathizes with the dancers, the agency can force Star Garden's owners to rehire them. From there, they can unionize. The first stripper union in 30 years by and for strippers, that's going to be historic. This could take a while, but Reagan isn't waiting around. She and the other dancers are once again putting on their own shows and acting as their own bosses. For NPR News, I'm Robin Estrin in Los Angeles. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Coming up on WBUR's All Things Considered, film critic Bob Mondella reviews Mrs. Harris Goes to Paris, a dramedy about a widowed cleaning lady in 1950s London who sets her heart on getting an haute couture dress. Tonight, the Red Sox get one more chance to top the Tampa Bay Rays as they play their fourth game out of four in St. Petersburg. Sox have lost seven of their last ten games. Cutter Crawford pitches for Boston tonight. Sunshine is mixed with some clouds now, although some parts of the region could eventually get hit with a heavy rain this afternoon, maybe a thunderstorm early tonight. The overnight hours should be mostly cloudy to start, then clear skies. Ultimately, overnight lows about 63. Tomorrow, a lovely July day, mostly sunny, not too hot, only in the low 80s. 75 degrees now in Boston at 449. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Dana-Farber Brigham Cancer Center, where specialists in your type of cancer create personalized care plans just for you. Learn more at youhaveus.org. And Fidelity Investments, reminding you it's never too early to start saving for your child's future. Learn more about a tax-advantaged 529 college savings account and how you can use the money to pay for qualified expenses at fidelity.com slash ufund. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. Member NYSE SIPC. This year, COVID lockdowns have slowed China's economy and taken a toll on business owners. I feel depressed. I cannot do business during the lockdown. And yet, I still pay for all my workers. I'm losing money every day. I'm Amy Scott. The cost of COVID for Shanghai business. Next time on Marketplace. Tonight at 6.30 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. 
This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Elsa Chang. Groups of black veterans recently met in Washington, D.C., and these groups have never come together like this before. They're hoping that by joining forces and telling their stories, they can make their voices heard regarding generations of inequality that they faced after serving their country. NPR's Quill Lawrence reports. Richard Brookshire served as a combat medic in Afghanistan, where he saw a lot. In 2016, when he got out to the outside world, it appeared like he was all set. He had a job lined up. He'd studied public policy at Columbia University while still in the Army. I graduated graduate school, and I um, got out the military within a month of each other. And um, that fall, Trump was elected. And I think for a lot of us in this country, it was uh, a culmination of of a lot. Just months later, an avowed white supremacist killed a 66-year-old black man in New York City with a sword. It turned out the murderer was a fellow Army vet Brookshire had deployed with. We were stationed on the same place for basic training. I went to Afghanistan at the same time, obviously with the same brigade, um, and then got out at the same time. That sparked, I think, in some respects, uh, a bit of a spiral from, for me. For Brookshire, that spiral became a full-blown mental health crisis. His career derailed. But as he was working on getting better, he noticed there were lots of other black vets needing help, and veterans' organizations weren't connected. I looked on the Internet, and when you, you Google black vets, nothing much shows up. Brookshire went on to help found the Black Veterans Empowerment Council, the BVEC, 19 black veterans groups working together. Brookshire was telling his story at their very first meeting in Washington. Listen, I'm like a working-class kid, grew up with a Haitian mom who's also a vet, who's here now. Thank mom, thanks. I love you. Um, and I think my story is a powerful one insofar as that, like, I don't wait. I, I, don't, I don't ask for permission. I just do, and I let spirit lead it. And I'm hoping that there's a lot of other black vets that want to stand next to me to do it. Storytelling and honoring the history of black vets is one part. Another is policy. The BVEC is already promoting research done with Yale Law School, which confirms that statistically, black vets are more often rejected by the VA or given lower benefits. Veterans getting their benefits is not something black vets should even have to ask for, says Navy vet Daniela Anderson. That's what's going to combat the, the narrative on the other side, if you want to call it that, right? The narrative um, that is telling people that that this isn't necessary, that we're asking for something that's not owed. The BVEC is pushing legislation to address racial bias in VA benefits now and going back to World War II. In the meantime, the coalition can take direct action. Veterans become more expensive if they're not using VA programs, right? Eli Williamson runs Leave No Veteran Behind in Chicago. No, no, I'm sorry, guys. I'm an airborne soldier, so listen, you're either going to say check you going to say something, right? All right, all right. I, I, Williamson wants all of these organizations to get an in-house veterans service officer. That's like a professional VA benefits navigator. The real transformative nature of this project is that if everybody in here is doing their work around veterans and everybody who meets you at your program is utilizing their benefits at 100%, then everybody has less work to do. If we increase the usage of VA benefits by 30 to 50 percent, we're talking about billions of dollars that flow into the same communities that are disinvestment, correct? The communities that these groups live and work in. Eli Williamson says the BVEC will concentrate on those three things, benefits, legislation, and history. And as he wraps up, he can't resist a little Army Marines trash talk. Being able to talk in threes, 
is good not just for funders but also for Marines because they can't, you know, they can't go past four. <laughs> what, I can't make a Marine joke? See, oh man, look at me. See, they about to take the mic. Wah, wah, wah. Yeah. No one is taking away the microphone. The Black Veterans Empowerment Council has already pushed the administration to fund a VA racial disparity study. Next is a bill in Congress to pay reparations for black World War II vets who were cheated out of their GI Bill benefits. They're meeting again next month in Chicago. Quill Lawrence, NPR News. This summer at the multiplex, superhero Thor is smashing up eternity. Top Gun's Maverick is flying at Mach 10. Dinosaurs are stomping through a Jurassic finale. And critic Bob Mondello has retreated to a quieter auditorium for Mrs. Harris Goes to Paris. It's the 1950s, and London cleaning lady Ada Harris is all about brightening everyone else's day, though folks barely notice her. She makes their apartments shine, lifts their spirits, and does her best not to think about the fact that her beloved husband Eddie never returned from World War II. Deep inside, she knows he's not coming back, but she's allowed herself to dream of little else until one day, in the wardrobe of a client, she spies a Christian Dior gown and has a new dream. Isn't it divine? The moment I laid eyes on Ravissant, I was ravished to the tune of 500 pounds. 500 quid for a dress? And I put it on. Nothing else matters. Now that Ada's seen it, she feels much the same way. And when the War Department finally gets in touch to say it owes her years of war widow's pension and she buys a winning lottery ticket, she figures her Eddie's sent her a message. I'm gonna buy a dress. Something pretty for a legendaire. Yeah. A Christian Dior dress from Paris. 500 quid. She manages to get to Paris, even arriving at the House of Dior on the day the new collection is being shown to clients, but unaware that she needs to be a client with an invitation. Excuse me, dear. Where would I find the frocks? I fear you have the wrong address, madame. I will call someone to show you the way. No, 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 sorry, I'm, I'm, I'm after a frock. Please, let me escort you out. No, 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 hang on a minute. I've come miles. Saved every penny, scrubbing floors, and I don't know what, so I can buy this frock. A Christian Dior gown is not for pennies. Enter Prince Charming. Excuse me, cher madame, but it would be my honor to have you view the collection as my guest. Fairy tales do come true, as a popular song of that era had it, if you're young at heart, and Ada, as played by Leslie Manville, is certainly that. She's also, in this charm-filled adaptation of Paul Gallico's 1958 novel, down-to-earth enough to win over the little folks who actually make the Dior dresses. Madame has the proportions of a model. <laughs> railway, more like. <laughs> the one person her working-class charm can't win over is Dior's self-appointed guardian, played snootily by Isabelle Huppert. Forgive me for saying this, but you are nobody, invisible. How will you give this dress to life it deserves? It's my dream. And my money's as good as anybody else's. Bien sûr. You may buy your dream, but what will you do with it? In The Phantom Thread, which was a very different kind of haute couture movie, it was Manville who played a character of this stripe, so who better to poke holes in the salon's fabric of class prejudice? Director Anthony Fabian surrounds her with period Dior gowns recreated by Cruella designer Jenny Beaven, a white-on-white -white sewing room where a splash of scarlet ribbon all but sets the frame vibrating, a Paris that is appropriately considering Mrs. Harris 
Tess's impulse to tidy things up in the midst of a garbage strike. She will help clean up other matters, a budding romance, even the salon itself. I never thought a place like Dior would have problems. On the way to a storybook conclusion that seems to take pride in being tied up with a lovely bow. I'm Bob Mandela. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. And from CrowdStrike, their cloud-native platform is designed to protect businesses from cyber attacks, ransomware, and data theft at home, at the office, and everywhere in between. More at crowdstrike.com NPR. And from Culligan Water, since 1936, a local Culligan specialist can provide in-home water tests and custom recommendations to treat the unique attributes of a home's water. More at culligan.com. This is 90.9 WBUR. Sunshine and clouds in some areas in the region and also thunderstorms in others. Thunderstorms are right now are over Taunton and Lakeville, moving eastward toward Plymouth. They come along with some soaking rains. Overnight tonight, we should have cloudy skies around the Boston area, then eventually clear. Lows about 63. Tomorrow should be beautiful, sunny, and on the comfortable side, temperatures in the low 80s. 75 degrees now in the Boston area at 459. I'm Ideas and Opinion Editor Chloe Axelson, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Some people who mistakenly believe the 2020 election was stolen are knocking on doors around the country to find out whether people actually voted. When the puzzle pieces don't fit together, it makes you wonder. And if it's important to you, you'll look into it. The canvassing is raising concerns about voter intimidation. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, it's a big week for the project manager of the James Webb Telescope. We'll talk with him about the challenges of the launch and what it's like having those prized images out in the world. And many small-town grocery stores can no longer stay afloat. But an innovative business model in one Minnesota town cuts costs and gives shoppers what they want. They realize, wow, these prices are they're a lot less than what I expected. And, oh, yep, they have this and they have that. And we try to make sure to stock the basics for sure. These stories and the numbers from Wall Street are coming up. It's 5.01. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. President Biden travels to Saudi Arabia tomorrow. He says it's an attempt to reassert U.S. leadership in the Middle East. NPR's Asma Khalid reports his comments came during a press conference in Jerusalem. Biden was asked what he'll say to Saudi leaders about human rights abuses and specifically the 2018 killing of journalist Jamal Khashoggi. The president suggested he's not shy in diplomacy, but stopped short of explicitly saying he'll bring up the Khashoggi murder. I will bring up, I always bring up human rights. I always bring up human rights. But my position on Khashoggi has been so clear. If anyone doesn't understand it in Saudi Arabia or anywhere else, then they haven't been around for a while. 
Biden said the reason he is visiting Saudi Arabia is to make sure the U.S. can lead in the Middle East and not create a vacuum filled by China or Russia. Asma Khalid, NPR News. The first wife of former President Donald Trump has died. Trump via his own social media platform today, announcing the death of ex-wife Ivana Trump, the mother of three of his children. According to media posts, Ivana Trump died at her home in Manhattan. She and Trump described as an 80s power couple as she helped him build a real estate empire, including Trump Tower in Manhattan and the Trump Taj Mahal Casino Resort in Atlantic City. After a somewhat bitter divorce, the Czech American businesswoman would go on to launch a line of clothing, jewelry, and beauty products. Ivana Trump was 73 years old. A House committee is holding a hearing today examining the impact of the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade. NPR's Windsor Johnson reports lawmakers are discussing ways to protect not only access to abortion, but other rights granted by the high court in past decisions. Committee Chairman Jerry Nadler opened the hearing by blasting the court for reversing decades of precedent. The court has defied the will of the American majority, and in doing so has undermined its own legitimacy in their eyes. Sarah Warblow is the legal director for the Human Rights Campaign. She says the ruling to overturn Roe opens up other cases for reversal, including the decision that legalized same-sex marriage. We'll vigorously defend precedents that protect the right to marriage and to loving who you love. The new majority of the Supreme Court may not be done with its work, but neither are we. Justice Clarence Thomas has suggested the court should reconsider due process rights like birth control and same-sex marriage in future decisions. Windsor Johnston, NPR News, Washington. At least some members of the Federal Reserve Board of Governors appeared to be saying they'd be open to a whopping 100 basis point or 1% move on interest rates when the central bank meets later this month, where it appears they would still favor a smaller increase, similar to what was put in place in June. Speculation of such a major move being driven by a big bump up in consumer prices in June and a rise in a key wholesale inflation number. On Wall Street, the Dow closed down 142 points today. You're listening to NPR. PR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Drought conditions in Massachusetts are worsening. The U.S. Drought Monitor today announced 21 percent of the state has entered a severe drought. That includes a large swath of north and west of Boston. Vandana Rao is director of water policy for the state's Office of Energy and Environmental Affairs. She says about one-third of Massachusetts towns and cities have put water restrictions in place because of the drought. We're also looking to coordinate closely with the boards of health across the Commonwealth so that we can reach out to those individuals that have private wells in case there are any instances of private wells drying up. We can we can help them with the resources on what to do next. Rao says you should limit outdoor watering of plants and stop watering your lawn. She says some farms are irrigating more often and they've had to delay seeding. The city of Revere has filed an emergency request asking a court to put a high-rise complex into receivership. The building was the scene of a fire last month that displaced more than 80 residents. The city says receivership is needed to ensure that necessary repairs are made. City officials will be conducting an inspection of the high-rise today. They'll meet with displaced residents next week to talk about how the city can help them. The mayor also said today the city will move to foreclose on all three properties the building's owners have in Revere for nearly $2 million in past due municipal taxes. Worcester officials are advising residents to avoid contact with the Blackstone River for at least two days because of a sewage spill. 
Nearly 900,000 gallons of sewage came out of an outfall pipe behind a Walmart early this morning following some heavy rainfall. The sewage is believed to be either untreated or only partially treated. And a musician who says they were assaulted by members of the white supremacist group Patriot Front this month will be back near the site of the attack tonight. Charles Murrell III is black. They were shoved and kicked to the ground as members of the group marched through Boston. Murrell was hospitalized and got stitches in the head. They will take part in a concert in Copley Square Green that features several artists and centers on social justice and race. For me, it's a choice of resistance and being like, am I not going to go back to the space that I was terrorized? No one has been arrested in the assault. In the forecast, 75 degrees now, sunshine through much of the area, but there are thunderstorms and soaking rains now over Middleborough and Carver, moving eastward toward Plymouth. There's lightning in the region as well. For most of the greater Boston area, look for cloudy skies overnight tonight, then clear by tomorrow morning. Overnight lows about 63. Should have a mostly sunny day tomorrow. Temperatures just about 80 degrees. This is WBUR. It's 507. WBUR supporters include Progressive Insurance, home of the Name Your Price tool, so drivers can see coverage options at Progressive.com or 1-800-PROGRESSIVE. Price and coverage match limited by state law. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Elsa Chang. Your vote is secret, but the fact that you voted in an election is typically public record. So some people who falsely believe the 2020 election was stolen have tried to audit the results themselves by going door to door in neighborhoods all across the country. As NPR's Miles Parks and Colorado Public Radio's Benta Berkland report, canvassing is part of a controversial movement to push Americans to uncover widespread fraud that has not been proven in their own communities. Last year, two men came to Michelle Garcia's door. One had a clipboard and a baseball cap on. The other wore a blue-collared shirt and a lanyard. They wanted to know how she cast her ballot. Here's a snippet of their interaction, recorded by Garcia's front door camera. You can hear them say they're working to verify the 2020 election results. We're doing a voter verification project. Okay. We're working on the city voter rolls here. I wanted to ask you a couple of questions about the 2020 vote. Garcia, who lives in Pueblo County, Colorado, says the two men asked her all sorts of questions all pointing back to the baseless idea that the 2020 election was stolen. His specific questions were, did you vote by mail-in ballot? How many times have you voted? He wanted to know who I voted for, who I supported. How do I know that it wasn't changed? And a lot of it was targeted at the clerk and recorder's office and that it was fraudulent. She told them she'd never had any issue with voting and didn't want to discuss her personal voting record. They were very aggressive. There was no boundaries with their ethics or with civility. They will push until you give an answer. A few hundred miles west in Mesa County, Ann Lamman was cooking dinner when three women knocked on her door. They just said they were canvassing, surveying, and asked if I voted in the last election. And I said, yes. And they said, did your husband vote in the last election? And I said, yes, he did. And they said, okay, thank you very much. She says the women weren't aggressive, but she still wondered why they were at her door. I asked them as they were turning to leave, I said, who is this for? And and they said, the Election Integrity Project, which I hadn't heard of. Technically, the group is called the U.S. Election Integrity Plan, 
which, to be clear, is not affiliated with the U.S. government or any elections office. The group's training documents also say they wanted canvassers to be unbiased and to only verify publicly available data. We've heard that many people welcomed the canvassers trying to uncover voter fraud. But after her interaction, Landman, who's a Democratic activist, says she was annoyed when she read about the group's motivations. It's not clear if these canvassers were affiliated with the ones who came to Michelle Garcia's door, who said they were with a local group. We should point out that in the two years since the 2020 election, numerous paper ballot hand counts, audits, and court cases across the country have confirmed the election results. But a constellation of these sorts of groups, where regular people go out in their neighborhoods and try to find the fraud themselves, have popped up across the country since 2020. When the puzzle pieces don't fit together, it makes you wonder. And if it's important to you, you'll look into it. That's Rebecca Kelty. She was a Republican congressional candidate. And we met up with her at an apartment building in El Paso County, where she helped canvas last summer. Kelty says canvassers were given sheets of voting records that included a person's name, address, and method of voting, all public information in Colorado. Though it's not clear why they were sent to certain locations and neighborhoods and not others. I'm not quite sure the criteria that they used to, to say, okay, these, these votes were in question, but they were in question. No one knows exactly how common this sort of fraud-motivated canvassing has become around the country. The group in Colorado put out a report this spring indicating volunteers with the organization knocked on close to 10,000 doors in just four counties here. And officials in other Colorado counties and a number of other states say it's happening there, too. The 2020 election wasn't close in Colorado. Still, the state has become a hotbed for election misinformation. Most Colorado counties use voting systems from Dominion, which has become a target of right-wing conspiracies and is headquartered in Denver. Another example, Mesa County Clerk Tina Peters, who was indicted for allegedly tampering with election equipment in an effort to expose fraud. She's defended her actions. Then there's Sean Smith, the co-founder of the Election Integrity Plan. He's from El Paso County. Recently, he said election officials, who he claims rigged the 2020 election, deserve to hang. I think of you involved in election fraud then you deserve to hang. Sometimes the whole ways are the best ways. I was accused of endorsing violence. I'm not endorsing violence. I'm saying when you put your hand on a hot stove, you get burned. Smith's group, the Election Integrity Plan, did not respond to requests by NPR for comment. But the group's website makes it clear they're working on building a fraud-finding infrastructure. The group has published an organizing playbook so regular people everywhere can join the movement. Kelty, the canvasser we heard from earlier, said she wants there to be more scrutiny on the upcoming November election than ever before. I hope it's under the tightest microscope you can possibly put it under. Is there a part of you that worries about, there's a lot of election workers who are quitting right now because the pressure is just so great and they're like worried about their safety because they're getting threats in a way they never were before. Do you worry about that microscope kind of furthering that problem? No, I don't, I don't think so. Um, I think if there is pressure and if, if there are threats, then that, that right there tells you that something they're trying to get away with something. And to be clear, election officials in Colorado are feeling that strain. 
like outgoing Republican clerk and recorder Chuck Broman from El Paso County. He faced pushback from people who wanted to investigate the county's voting machines. I remember after one particular meeting where there was a lot of pressure and uh, the statement that, you know, Clerk Broman will either do this with you or through you, which I took as a, a threat that you better work with us or we'll make things difficult for you. People associated with this canvassing movement say it's all about transparency. Here's Kelty. You only hide things when you're ashamed of them. So let's go out, let's, let's open everything up, complete transparency. But the election integrity plan isn't being fully transparent themselves. It claims to have affidavits indicating election crimes were committed in a number of Colorado counties, including Broerman's. That's a big accusation. But the election integrity group hasn't provided details for these supposed crimes or the affidavits referenced in its report. When we visited his office, Borman pulled out a map of his county and a highlighter to show us some of the neighborhoods he's guessing they visited. This is, I think, the precinct, the Fillmore area where we think there was canvassing done. He said the group owes it to its volunteers to share whatever evidence they have. Borman is basically certain there's a reasonable explanation for whatever anomalies the canvassers think they found. I think the volunteers that did this really want to gain better understanding and assurances. And I, I think you, you owe it to them to uh, follow up on that data and verify that it is a, indeed the case and it's not being used as a tool to push a particular viewpoint. But at this point, you may be wondering, is this sort of data collection even legal? Can just anyone go door to door asking people about how and whether they voted? And the answer is pretty complicated. It's not against the law for constituents to investigate their own elections. That's Sharona Bishop, who helped organize canvassers in Mesa County. There is no law against going door to door to figure out if people actually voted in the election that the certified data says they voted in. And Bishop is correct, though, with a giant asterisk. In an open letter last year referencing an election review in Arizona, the U.S. Department of Justice warned that certain canvassing could be voter intimidation, possibly violating the Federal Voting Rights Act. And some county officials got calls last summer from people who said canvassers claimed to be with the government. Here's Carly Coppas, the Republican county clerk in Weld County. We started getting calls saying, what in the heck is going on? Like, why did these people come to my door? Why are they asking me about this? Uh, and they said they were giving the perception that they were with your office. And if you're giving that perception that you are, a government official, it almost equates to the same as you saying that you're a police officer when you're not. All the canvassers we talked to said that didn't happen on their watch. In Mesa County, the clerk's office said they answered questions for months. And according to county officials, a lot of the voters were angry at the clerk's office because they said canvassers told them their votes weren't counted. The clerk's office said that information was wrong. Several voting rights groups have also filed a lawsuit to stop these sorts of canvases from continuing in Colorado after the midterm elections. They allege it's a type of voter intimidation that will negatively affect communities of color. And U.S. Election Integrity Plan has countersued for defamation. Even if the voting rights groups do stop this specific practice, though, election officials say that doesn't solve the core problems that drive people to election denialism. Here's Clerk Broerman again. I think people are looking for answers. You know, I voted for candidate X. I voted for issue Y. 
um, all my friends that I, you know, live and work with and go to church with and, and hang out with believe like I do. So how could something be different than hot? He says for a lot of these volunteers, investigating election results could be part of their search for meaning and understanding in the world. For NPR News, I'm Benta Berkland in Denver. And I'm Miles Parks in Washington. President Biden travels to Saudi Arabia tomorrow with soaring inflation and record high oil prices here at home. Can he get the Gulf to ramp up oil production? And how much of a relief would it be for Americans who are feeling pain at the pump? More tomorrow on Morning Edition. you're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR, a new rural self-serve grocery store experiment coming up on All Things Considered. And coming to WBUR City Space this Saturday, a crossword show, a live comedy event hosted by actor, TV writer, and comedian Zach Sherwin. You can get tickets at WBUR.org events. In the forecast, sun mixed with some clouds today, although some parts of the region are getting a soaking rain. Commuters in Carver and Plymouth are now having to reckon with the drenching rain, thunder and lightning this afternoon. Some hail is coming down. There are strong winds of about 60 miles per hour. Storms on the way out to sea. Tonight, clouds for the first part of the night. Clear skies later and then tomorrow, sunny and lovely, about 81 degrees. This is 90.9 WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by 1776 at the ART. See the electrifying revival of the Tony-winning Best Musical. Final Weeks closes July 24th. amrep.org. And La Cuchara Cafe in Melrose. Latin American fare with a modern twist. Drop-off lunch catering for all occasions in greater Boston. LaCuchara.com. The Dow lost about a half percent today, 143 points to close at 30,630. S&P gave up ground as well. It fell about a third of a percent to finish down at 3,790. The Nasdaq gained a small fraction of a percent to end the day at 11,251. This is 90.9 WBUR. Stay tuned for Marketplace and all the day's business news coming up at 6.30. 75 degrees now in Boston at 5.20. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief. Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com. From C3AI, C3AI software enables organizations to use artificial intelligence at enterprise scale, solving previously unsolvable problems. C3AI is enterprise AI and from the Lemelson Foundation. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Ari Shapiro. This week, we got a new view of space, and it was epic. Cosmic cliffs of glowing gas, spinning galaxies, dying stars. The James Webb Telescope caught those images of ancient history, billions of light years away, showing what the universe looked like when it was just forming after the Big Bang. Some 20,000 people worked on the project for almost two decades, and we are joined now by the engineer who's been the project manager since 2011. Bill Oakes, welcome and congratulations. It's been quite a week. 
Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, it's actually been quite a, an 11 and a half years, but um, <laughs> but I've been on the project. But um, yes, this this week topped it all off. Yeah. Made so take us back while. to those earliest days in 2011. What did the project back then look like in terms of like budget, time frame, ambition? When I came on board, um, they had just gone through an external review. And, you know, it was basically included that they weren't going to make their current launch date, which I think at that time was, I want to say it was 2013. Hmm. Um, we didn't have enough money. So when I came on board, I was asked to go ahead and put together a replan, which was, was, which was quite challenging because, you know, you're brand new onto something. The replan, that admission of this complexity is a pretty steep learning curve. Yeah. Uh, at that point, we had had enough issues and things were just taking longer. Um, the yeah. complexity of this mission and testing it on the ground made us understand we really needed a, a little bit more time. Wow. Over the history of this project, there have been so many close calls and near disasters. Many astronomers said they never thought it would work. Can you describe the moment that you came closest to despair that you felt almost like giving up? I, I, in all honesty, I, I don't think I ever got to that point of really feeling like, hey, it's never going to work. I did hit my my retirement age at one point, and I thought, hey, you know, maybe I should just retire. And then I'm like, no, I got to see this out at the end. What year was that? Um, about three years ago. Huh. Yeah. But that was it. I mean, I, I tell folks all the time, the type of words I never heard on this project in the 11 and a half years that I have been here is give up, failure. Never heard those words. It was always, hey, we got an issue, whether it was a design complexity issue or you know, in this case, we did have some mistakes that were made. How do we correct this? How do we make sure this doesn't happen again? And how do we move on? What was the moment you finally allowed yourself to exhale that you finally said, this worked? Um, <laughs> I would have held my breath for a pretty long time. Um, <laughs> you know, it, it actually came in, in steps, right? So I really wasn't worried about the launch. The launch vehicle team was outstanding. But those first two and a half weeks of deployment, you know, that's probably the highest anxiety level that we had. Um, I'm a pretty laid back person. I've done operations before. Um, so I don't, I'm pretty calm throughout the whole thing. But definitely the anxiety level was up. Why? Just because it might not have deployed in the way it was supposed right. to? Right. And that's, you know, if you heard uh, prior to launch folks talk, we had 344 single point failures. A single point failure means if this one thing fails, we could potentially lose the whole mission. And a majority of those single point failures were going to be retired through that first two weeks or so of deployments. So when you think about it, right, anything in that first two weeks could have, could have maybe taken us out. Wow. Um, when we got through those first two weeks, there's a big sigh of relief. When we deployed that final uh, mirror wing, huge sigh of relief. Now you go through a period of, of checking out the rest of this, the spacecraft itself, and now we get ready to start aligning the mirrors. But there were 155 motors on the backs of these mirrors to make them function properly for us to do the alignments. Every single one of them worked. Every single one of them survived wow. the launch environment and all the testing we had done on, on the ground. Am I correct that right now it appears that the telescope is working even better than it was designed to? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We, we, we're meeting or exceeding requirements across the board, especially with the telescope. That just means that we have more margin before we ever get the trouble over the life of mission, which will then help extend mission life. So we'll be getting more images longer. Right, right. I mean, we have fuel now for 20 plus years. So now it's, hey, is the hardware going to last that long? And it's, it's looking really good.
So take us to the moment you saw the first images coming in. So the images that we released on Tuesday, I only saw a preview of a couple of weeks ago. So the real images were the engineering images that we took during the mirror alignment phase. And if you saw that the first image that we released that showed that, you know, the perfectly focused star, yeah, that was actually a cropped image. But when you looked at the entire image, it was like, yeah, yeah, okay, that's cool. The star is focused. Let's look at those galaxies in the back. And one of our engineers slash scientists started counting. And in that first image, he counted 250 plus galaxies and then made a little photo montage of each of the galaxies. I started carrying this stuff around on my phone with like my baby pictures, right? Of course. <laughs> you know, instead of pictures of my grandson, I'm, I'm showing people pictures of, of galaxies. And the structure that you could see was amazing. And, you know, we're like, wow, this is really cool. And, you know, if you think of Webb, if you, let's, say, let's say we put it in car terms, right? This, this thing's a Ferrari or a Lamborghini. Now we're probably getting close to where we can go in the second gear. Hmm. But at that point, you know, we were barely in first gear and we're still already seeing this amazing stuff. I, I know you're a level-headed engineer, but did you get emotional? Um, I got excited. So that's <laughs> yes. yes. As far as, you know, the teary-eyed kind of stuff. No, I get that. I'm very much a people person. Uh huh. And as the project manager, I, I feel very close to my team and, one of the things that you deal with at this point in the mission is we're all starting to go our separate ways. And it's, it's sad to say goodbye to folks. So there's always a mixture of emotions there. What's it been like to see the world react? Oh, it's amazing. I mean, it's from the day we launched, we started getting reaction from folks all over the world of how touched they were by this and how excited they were. I participated in a National Park Service slash NASA Dark Sky Festival at Death Valley National Park in February. And myself and one of our scientists gave the keynote address. And afterwards we're hanging around and we're talking to folks and they're asking questions. And we had this one lady come up to us and she said, hey, I drove three hours to get here only to hear you guys speak. This is such great news in this world full of trouble. And she started crying when she was talking to us. And then just today, there was a, a special on about web last night on TV. And um, one of my communications folks got an email from a rancher in Idaho saying how him and his family were so touched by it. And he, they even now more appreciate the fact that they're really in a good dark sky area and they can go out at night and see so many stars. It just gave them a greater appreciation. But again, it was related back to, and with so much trouble in the world, this is just a, a ray of sunshine. Bill Oakes is project manager of the James Webb Space Telescope for NASA. Thank you. I hope you're off to take a long vacation. Uh, yeah, it's called retirement in about six weeks. What a way to go out. My goodness. Well yeah, earned. I mean, you know, this, is, this is a side thing. I, I started as a fresh out out of college on contract working on the construction of Hubble. Hmm. So I, I'm always amazed. I started on Hubble and I get to finish. That's the a project great project. way to yeah. end. Yeah. So enjoy your retirement. You've earned it. Thank you so much. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Coming up on Marketplace tonight, mortgage rates on a 30-year fixed are just over 5.5%. And with inflation still rising, they could go even higher. 
people still so desperately want to purchase. It's just that the market has become so difficult financially. The state of home buying in the U.S. tonight on Marketplace starts at 6.30. And on All Things Considered, some residents of Buckhead, the richest and whitest part of Atlanta, have been pushing to become their own separate city. That story is coming up. No pressure on Cutter Crawford tonight. He's only got to hold off a clean sweep by the Tampa Bay Rays. Crawford will pitch for the Sox against the Rays' Drew Rasmussen in the fourth and final game of the series in St. Petersburg. This is WBUR. It's 5.30. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Dana-Farber Brigham Cancer Center. When it comes to cancer, it matters where you start and when you start. Don't wait. Visit youhaveus.org. A lot of us talk to our cars when we're driving. In my case, it's mostly me saying, come on, come on, come on, please start. If your car's like that, then maybe it's time for a new conversation. Hey, I'm Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. Let's talk about donating your car, your old or unwanted car, whatever it is, it can be turned into Morning Edition, Wait, Wait, or Snap Judgment. Trust me, your car will understand. Here's how. Just go to WBUR.org. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. President Biden and Israeli Prime Minister Lapid declared today they would not allow Iran to become a nuclear power, but they didn't see eye to eye on how to reach that outcome. Biden says he still wants to give diplomacy a chance, while Lapid insists that tough words alone won't stop Tehran's nuclear ambitions. Words will not stop them, Mr. President. Diplomacy will not stop them. The only thing that will stop Iran is knowing that if they continue to develop their nuclear program, the free world will use force. Both the U.S. and Israel want to put an end to Iran's recent advances in uranium enrichment. President Biden is holding out hope that Iran will be persuaded to rejoin the nuclear agreement, while Israel has been training its military in the event it needs to carry out a strike against Tehran in the future. In southwest Virginia, all of the people reported missing after a series of thunderstorms and flooding have now been located. There were no fatalities or serious injuries, as David Seidel of member station WVTF reports. Crews searched more than 400 structures for victims since the flash flooding hit late Tuesday night. An official with the Virginia Department of Emergency Management couldn't provide an exact number of the impacted homes, but said the damage ranges from minor to washed away. Work to assess damage to roads and homes is expected to take weeks. A series of thunderstorms hit Buchanan County in the mountainous southwest corner of the state Tuesday evening, dumping four to six inches of rain in just a few hours. It's the second major flash flood event to hit the county in less than a year. Late last summer, flash flooding damaged several dozen homes and killed one person. For NPR News, I'm David Seidel in Roanoke. Stocks finished mixed on Wall Street. You're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. The Massachusetts House and Senate have struck a tentative agreement on a state budget for the next fiscal year. Leaders of both branches made the announcement this afternoon and say they anticipate voting in the first uh, the final version next week. Details have not yet been released yet, but it's expected to be a roughly $50 billion spending package. The fiscal year started on the first of this month without an annual spending bill in place. The state is currently operating on a temporary budget. Massachusetts has been producing more than 100,000 fewer housing units than it needs to keep up with annual demand. 
That's according to a new report that finds the Boston area is among the worst performing regions for housing production in the U.S. WBOR's Simone Rios has more. The report by a nonprofit called Up for Growth finds the rate of underproduction doubled in Massachusetts between 2012 and 2019. Greg Vassell of the Greater Boston Real Estate Board says luxury housing is easy to finance and low-income housing is subsidized, but it's particularly hard for developers who want to build middle-class housing. When you take the price of land and then the, the cost of labor and the services, you know, permitting and things like that, you end up with a number that prices you out of the middle of the market. And Vassell says if the problem isn't fixed by lawmakers, more and more young professionals are going to be leaving Massachusetts for places where they can afford to own a home. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Simone Rios. The Boston Teachers Union has reached a tentative agreement with the city for a new three-year contract. The deal includes an overhaul to the district's approach to special education that involves creating smaller class sizes and hiring additional staff. It also establishes a family leave policy for all educational staff and provides annual raises of 2.5%. The contract still needs to be ratified by members of the Boston Teachers Union. It will then head to the school committee for final approval. And the Environmental Protection Agency is facing a lawsuit over pollution in three Boston-area rivers. The Conservation Law Foundation and the Charles River Watershed Association say they're filing suit against the EPA to protect the Charles, Mystic, and Neponset Rivers. The organizations say the agency has failed to regulate stormwater runoff from industrial and commercial properties around the waterways. They say the runoff creates a toxic stew that enters the rivers. WBR has reached out to the EPA for comment on the lawsuit. In the forecast, still some thunderstorms over parts of the region. Right now over Pembroke and Plymouth, down Route 3 to the Sagamore Bridge. Sunshine in other areas, though. Look for cloudy skies overnight tonight, then clear skies by morning. Overnight lows about 63. may be able to get a glimpse or two of the waning moon. Tomorrow should be a lovely July day. Mostly sunny skies, not too hot. Temperatures in the low 80s. Then for the weekend, more of the same. Sunny skies could, though, warm to the low to mid-80s by Sunday. This is WBUR. It's 535. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of z Pure Z's Gummies, designed with melatonin for occasional sleeplessness to help people fall asleep naturally. Learn more at zquill.com. And from Focus Features with Mrs. Harris Goes to Paris, Leslie Manville plays a 1950s housekeeper who discovers the dress of her dreams and transforms the House of Dior. In theaters tomorrow. And from the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, at macfound.org. It's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Elsa Chang. Russia has once again hit a densely populated civilian area in a Ukrainian city, this time striking Vinitsa in central Ukraine with powerful cruise missiles. Here's what the scene sounded like this afternoon as rescue crews dug through rubble looking for survivors. At least 23 people are dead and dozens more are missing or are being treated at local hospitals. Ukrainian officials say these strikes on civilian areas are deliberate and are part of a pattern. They're calling them an act of terror. NPR's Brian Mann is in Vinitsa and joins us now. Hi, Brian. Hi, Elsa. Okay, so what exactly did people there see today? 
Well, it was a horror. I spoke to Maxim Butko, who was there in the central square in Vinitsa, when he heard the missiles coming in. He, he says he was thrown to his knees by two blasts as these missiles hit buildings on both sides of the square. Uh, these buildings were shattered with debris thrown everywhere. And as you mentioned, Elsa, at least 23 people have been killed. That number is expected to rise, and several young children were among the dead. That's according to local officials. Well, as we've mentioned, Ukrainian officials like President Volodymyr Zelensky, they're calling this terrorism. And I understand that Zelensky spoke to diplomats at The Hague today demanding accountability. But, but what about people in Vinitsa, Brian? How are they characterizing what's been happening? Yeah, they definitely believe this is part of a pattern. They're seeing city after city struck, civilians dying, and today it was their turn horribly. I spoke with Oksana Urbanska today. She's with the State Emergency Services of Ukraine. She was helping coordinate first responders there on the scene. What Urbanska told me is that she grew up here. She lives in Vinitsa. There is a baby who died, she said. Uh, she said this woman and this child were walking to a preschool when the blast hit. And she added, you know, these buildings have no military or strategic value. Despite that fact, Ukraine's defense ministry says this attack involved really powerful caliber cruise missiles, apparently fired from a Russian submarine in the Black Sea. As you mentioned, uh, Zelensky spoke by video conference to UN officials today, calling this an audacious act of Russian terror. He called for punishment for Russians involved in this attack. And I, I heard that, Brian, you were actually in one of the buildings that was destroyed today. You were back there in May when you were interviewing Ukrainian Air Force officials. Let me ask you, is it accurate to say that these buildings were not military targets before? Yeah, I, I asked about this today. And what Ukrainian officials say, Elsa, is that one of these buildings does have a history of use by the Air Force. It is still used sometimes for ceremonial events. But it does seem clear that there was no actual military operation being staged there. One of the buildings was actually a medical clinic. I asked Yuri Ignat, an Air Force spokesman, why he thinks Russia is doing this. Why do they keep attacking civilian targets? What he said, Elsa, is Russians don't just want to force the government of Ukraine to surrender. He said they also want to force the Ukrainian people to surrender. They want to break us down. But Ignat added that after what they did here in Vinitsa, no one is going to surrender. And in fact, while I was there today, Ukrainian investigators were already gathering evidence for what they hope will be war crime trials. That is NPR's Brian Mann in Vinitsa, Ukraine. Thank you so much, Brian. Thank you. Across the country, small-town grocery stores are disappearing, largely due to shrinking profit margins and rising costs. In one small central Minnesota town, a young couple is testing a model that cuts costs and engages local residents. Minnesota Public Radio's Dan Gunderson reports. Alex and Kayleen Austinson moved to the small town of Evansville about five years ago to be closer to family. The local grocery store, in business for more than 70 years, had just closed. That meant at least a 40-mile round-trip drive just to get basic groceries. So Kayleen says the couple started brainstorming ideas to operate a store sustainably in the town of 600. We had just been hearing a lot from people, man, it would be nice if we had a grocery store back in town. That's something we really miss. It is a staple. It's a cornerstone, part of a community. 
Alex is a diesel mechanic by training, but he likes problem solving, so he looked to technology for a solution. People who buy a $75 annual membership get 24-7 access to the store through a phone app. Kayleen demonstrates the phone app that opens the front door. All you need to do is go up and press the button, and it recognizes it. It unlocks and you're good to go. This small Main Street storefront is tiny compared to a traditional supermarket, but the shelves are filled with the basics, and customers can request special orders on a chalkboard hanging on the wall. Customers can scan items with their phone and pay using the app. There's also a key fob option and a scanner for those who aren't comfortable using their phone. The technology tracks customers and their purchases. Only members using their phone or fob to unlock the door are allowed in. The store also has security cameras, and theft has not been an issue. The store is staffed three days a week, but the focus is on anytime access. Alex Austinson says the goal was to sign up 50 paying members in the first year. They hit that target in the first week. With the boost of memberships right off the bat, that is what partially funded our first inventory. So, you know, it helped us greatly right at the beginning. Karen Howell and her husband were among the first to buy a Main Street grocery membership. She doesn't mind paying the $75 annual fee because the store saves a lot of 40-mile trips for groceries. We don't do all of our shopping here because they aren't able to carry everything that I might want to buy. But we try to support them any way that we can because we are so proud to have them here. Brandon Borgstrom is administrator at the local nursing home. He says with a busy life, the local store is a convenience worth paying for. It's nice to go grab milk, eggs, bread, or, you know, it's Sunday afternoon and you're sitting down for dinner and you realize you don't have, you know, cream of mushroom soup for the, the green bean casserole you're going to make. You know, so just those little things that add up. The store plans to expand offerings of local produce and locally produced things like honey and butter. Kayleen Austinson says they've worked hard to overcome the perception that a small grocery is like a convenience store with limited choices and high-cost items. She says first-time customers are often surprised. They realize, wow, these prices are they're a lot less than what I expected, and oh, oh, yep, they have this and they have that, and we try to make sure to stock the basics for sure and then just grow and go from there. Kathy Drager studies the viability of rural grocery stores at the University of Minnesota. She thinks this model is a good one to try to replicate. Especially during times when gas prices are going high and there is a worker shortage, I think this is a really great innovation. Alex was recently awarded a two-year Rural Innovation Fellowship through a nonprofit. The stipend will allow him to stop working as a mechanic and now focus on working to expand his self-serve grocery model to other small towns. For NPR News, I'm Dan Gunderson in Evansville, Minnesota. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Shanghai is reporting a new wave of COVID-19 cases, and authorities have launched mandatory mass testing across much of the city to try to stop it. Testing is a cornerstone of the Chinese government's aggressive zero-COVID strategy. And as NPR's John Ruich reports, even when it's not mandatory, it's still necessary. 
This is a new part of the soundtrack of life in China these days. Those are bullhorns playing recorded messages. Some declare that proof of a negative COVID-19 test is required to enter a building or neighborhood. Others announce the procedures at local testing sites. In Chinese cities these days, getting tested at one of these sites has become a prominent beat in the rhythm of life. Here's why. Pretty much every indoor public place requires proof of a negative test. Office buildings, restaurants, even the subway. Sometimes you don't have to test every day, but when cases pop up, things get tighter. In Shenzhen, the entire population of 17 million was recently required to test every 24 hours when a handful of cases appeared. Xiao Xiao works as a food delivery guy there, and it doesn't phase him. It's not really a question of whether this is a good thing or not. It's everyone's responsibility. All we can do is respect the policy and follow it. Test sites dot China's urban landscape. Some are pinnacle tents on the sidewalk, others more permanent kiosks. In Shanghai, the authorities say there are more than 15,000 of them spread strategically around the city. That way, officials say every one of Shanghai's 25 million residents is within a 15-minute walk of a PCR test. The testing is paid for by the local government and free to residents here. Elsewhere, some cities have reportedly blown out their budgets and are charging a small fee. To get tested, you have to show a special QR code in an app on your smartphone. On a hot afternoon in Shanghai, a health worker in a white hazmat suit checks mine. So they've scanned my code. I'm now waiting for the guy to put gloves on and swab my mouth, opening my mouth. Here we go. A long cotton swab is pushed around near the back of my throat for a second or two. Done. Later in the evening, the results are negative, and the health code on my phone updates to show that I still don't have COVID-19. For the most part, people seem to be taking it all in stride, like Fiona, who talked to NPR while waiting in a long line to get swabbed in Shenzhen. Normally, you can get it done in about 10 or 5 minutes. There are a lot of test sites now, so it's really convenient. Despite China's tight COVID controls, there are still cases here, although the official number and the death toll are low. Fiona didn't want to give her full name for fear of criticizing the government. She thinks testing every day is not necessarily a great way to stop the virus. But at least it can make everyone feel like they can relax around others, because everyone's doing the tests and everyone has the test results to show for it. Things get tricky when test results are not negative. Anyone who tests positive gets hauled off to a government isolation facility. Their apartment block and office can be locked down. And if a wave is building, entire cities can be shut down too, like Shanghai was for two months this spring. Back on the street, a construction worker surnamed Wu, who also didn't want to give his full name, says getting sick with COVID doesn't scare him. The thing I'm more afraid of is quarantine. If you get COVID, you have to quarantine. That's required. And if you're sent to quarantine, he says, it makes it hard to support a family. John Ruich, NPR News, Shanghai. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Coming up on WBUR, as All Things Considered, since 2005, 10 communities in the Atlanta area have declared their own cityhood. The latest attempt is by some residents of the wealthiest and whitest parts of Atlanta. That story is coming up. Also, a podcaster with a penchant for Old Bay seasoning. 
in the forecast, sunshine in most parts of the region right now, but there are strong thunderstorms drenching parts of the south shore. One storm is over Marshfield, Kingston, and Plymouth. There is also a storm on the north shore. It's hovering above Newburyport. Both storms have gusty winds and some hail, and both are moving eastward and will eventually push offshore. Overnight tonight, cloudy skies for the first part of the night, then turning clear, lows about 65. Tomorrow, the clouds move on out. Sunshine comes back pretty comfortable. Highs about 81 degrees. 75 degrees now in the Boston area. This is 90.9 WBUR. It's 549. I'm Tiziana Deering. Tomorrow on Radio Boston, what's your favorite ice cream flavor? We are way beyond chocolate and vanilla these days. Today, ice cream can be complicated, sophisticated, even spicy. We've got the scoop on ice cream innovations as we taste unusual creations from local makers. That's Radio Boston tomorrow at 11, only on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Ari Shapiro. The Buckhead neighborhood is the richest and whitest part of Atlanta. For the last couple of years, some residents there have been pushing for it to become its own separate city. And it wouldn't be the first community in the Atlanta area to declare cityhood. Since 2005, 10 others have done it. Planet Money's Erica Barris explains some of the history. By most accounts, Georgia's cityhood effort starts with one man, Oliver Porter. He's 85, and when he decides he wants to do something, he just goes ahead and does it. For example, he wanted an oak-paneled library with lots of shelves and a rolling ladder. So he made one in his basement. No idea what I was doing when I was building this. I'd never done any woodworking or anything of this magnitude. I guess I felt like I want it, so I'll just do it. And that was more or less his approach back in the 90s when he decided he wanted to turn his own well-to-do community of Sandy Springs into its own city. One of his concerns, Sandy Springs tax dollars and how the county was spending them. We used to say you could hear the money whoosh as it leaves town. They were not giving us services commensurate with what our contribution. Cityhood seemed within reach because Georgia's rules for becoming a city are pretty permissive. The state legislature has to sign off on the proposed new city. Then it goes to ballot. And if the majority of the people who live inside the proposed city boundaries vote yes, then it can happen. Declaring cityhood would give Sandy Springs more control over local tax money and how to spend it, and also more control over local ordinances, which was important to Oliver because he had another concern. The county had been approving apartments left and right, so it was great concern that we were turning from a quiet residential community into a high-rise apartment community, and we didn't feel that was, was good for the community. Obviously, there's nothing wrong with being an apartment dweller, but in general, they don't have the same commitment to the community as people who own their homes. They're more transient, and they haven't invested at the same level. At the time, 94% of homeowners in Sandy Springs were white, and 90% of renters were black and Latino, which is one reason why Sandy Springs and Georgia's cityhood movement more broadly has been criticized as racist. How rooted was all of this, like, most the more recent effort in those things? In, in racist issues? In, ra- in racism, in segregation, Not at in all. exclusion. Not at all. It's obviously one of the things we're always charged with. Uh, there's no truth to it whatsoever. 
It was all about the economics. It was all about the governance. But the notion of cityhood for Sandy Springs actually dates back to the 1960s, long before Oliver Porter moved to the community. Atlanta was annexing surrounding suburbs and wanted to bring in Sandy Springs. Residents of Sandy Springs pushed back. In a letter to Atlanta's mayor, local organizers said they would, quote, build up a city separate from Atlanta and your Negroes and forbid any Negroes to buy or own or live within our limits. But now, nearly 20 years after Oliver succeeded in making Sandy Springs a city, a mostly black and brown community in the Atlanta suburbs is trying to use the tactic for its own ends. That community is called Mapleton. One claim to fame, the nearby Six Flags amusement park. Trey Hutchins grew up there and left for college in the late 90s. When he came back to raise his kids, he saw so much had changed. I just started seeing the age and the decline in the area. And we have to do something. And I didn't know what it was. Things like the skating rink, the movie theater, the bowling alley were gone and replaced by lots of tire shops. That's because of the zoning rules where he lives. If Mableton were a city, it would have authority over those zoning rules and how it spends more of its tax dollars. And it could bring in new businesses. Trey's well aware of the racist charges leveled at cityhood. Does it feel like you're sort of flipping it on, on its head? Well, I'm not sure. Because I for us, it was more so, how do we better our current situation? And so when we looked at it from that lens, I'm not sure that any of those other things were a factor. It was more like, this is the playbook. This is how this is, can happen. And, um, and this is the outcome of that. And I think that's where our focus has always been. If he can use cityhood to help his community, he's in. It's all in the hopes of building something better. I'm Erica Barris, NPR News. Support for Planet Money comes from Workday, an enterprise management cloud focused on providing organizations with a system to continuously plan for all what-if scenarios. Workday, the finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. This summer, we're celebrating the things we're really into, besides, of course, daily news. Well, Emma Choi hosts NPR's Everyone and Their Mom podcast. It's a spinoff from Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. And so she roped scorekeeper Bill Curtis into helping her tell the story of what she's really into, Old Bay seasoning. (laughs) There are things that I always keep on my person. My phone, because duh. A tote bag, because it's easy to wash when I spill my chai all over it. My various cards, the important ones, like my credit card, driver's license, school ID, and my frozen yogurt rewards punch card. And a compact, individual-sized container of Old Bay seasoning. Now, you might be asking... Emma, why Old Bay seasoning? Also, your skin is positively glowing today. What's your secret? Oh, wow. Thank you so much. There's no secret. It's just good jeans and Shiseido-free samples my grandmother sends me. But in regards to the Old Bay, my reasoning mostly hinges on functionality. I eat nearly every meal in a college dining hall where the food can be best described as demoralizing. A sprinkle of Old Bay can elevate anything from a dry chicken breast to a nondescript featured fish to even, if the pickings are especially bad, a hard-boiled egg. And of course, the transformative power of Old Bay isn't limited to just the confines of college cuisine. Bland food runs wild like a plague amongst this earth. Carrying a shaker of Old Bay, I'm like Achilles, armed with his mighty shield, running into an epic battle against unseasoned food. 
And beyond just its culinary uses, a container of Old Bay is a conversation piece. Oh, hey, what's that in your bag? Oh, just a shaker of Old Bay seasoning. Wow, that's so cool. Will you be my friend? Also, here's all the money in my wallet. Old Bay transforms a tasteless foodstuff into a mediocre meal. You could say that it's my spoonful of sugar. But instead of that magical syrup Julie Andrews doles out in Mary Poppins, it's orange, grainy, and really high in sodium. But aside from functionality, I guess I keep Old Bay with me because it reminds me of home. I remember eating a bucket of fries smothered in Old Bay while digging a giant hole in the middle of Bethany Beach, Delaware, not far from where the spice blend was created. I remember the scent of seafood when my family hosted blue crab boils the searing pain when the Old Bay coating the shells got into the cuts of my skin. At 22, my childhood feels both like something still close enough to touch and something that sailed impossibly far away. When I think of home, I think of hardwood floors, the sound of boiling jigge, of sunlight falling through a picture window. I think of our pantry, stacked high with snacks, packets of dried seaweed, and its tall rack of spices. It's nice to have a little bit of our pantry at the bottom of my bag. That is NPR's Emma Choi on her love of Old Bay seasoning. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Workday, committed to helping organizations adapt to change using real-time data to uncover insights, stay decision-ready, and prepare for whatever's next, the finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. And from Fisher Investments, wealth management from dedicated advisors that tailor portfolios to each client's unique goals. More at fisherinvestments.com. Investing in securities involves the risk of loss. And from Viking, committed to exploring the world in comfort, offering a small ship experience with a shore excursion included in every port, destination-focused dining, and programs designed for cultural enrichment. Viking. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Sunshine in most parts of the region right now. There were some pop-up thunderstorms, especially on the south shore a little bit earlier. All that remains is a final patch of stormy weather over part of Marshfield. Tonight, cloudy skies in greater Boston, at least for the first part of the night. Then it should turn clear. Lows about 65 degrees. Tomorrow, any remaining clouds move out. Sunshine returns pretty comfortable. Highs about 81 degrees. 79 degrees now in Boston at 559. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Xfinity Internet, committed to delivering Internet service over a gig designed to power your devices while fitting your budget. More at Xfinity.com gig. I'm education reporter Max Larkin, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. President Biden spent the day trying to reassure Israel his administration is invested in its security, and he voiced concern about the nuclear ambitions of Iran. Words will not stop them. Diplomacy will not stop them. The only way to stop them is to put a credible military threat on the table. This is All Things Considered. 
Also ahead, U.S. basketball star Brittany Griner is on trial in Russia for allegedly bringing drugs into the country. She went to Russia to play professional ball there. Today, one of her Russian teammates testified at Griner's drug trial. Our team is our family, and it's very important to be with this person. We need her, she needs us. And the Department of Transportation is taking action against airlines that have refused to issue refunds for canceled flights. It's also created a bill of rights for passengers with disabilities. It's 6.01 News Headlines and Wall Street numbers are coming up. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. A federal grand jury has indicted the man accused of carrying out the deadly mass shooting at a grocery store in Buffalo, New York in May. As NPR's Ryan Lucas reports, the alleged shooter faces federal hate crime and firearms charges. The Justice Department says 19-year-old Peyton Gendron has been indicted on 27 counts in all. 14 of those are violations of the Shepard Bird Hate Crimes Prevention Act, which charges that the shooter targeted the victims because of their race. Gendron, who is white, is accused of killing 10 black people and wounding three others at the Topps grocery store in Buffalo on May 14th. The charges carry a maximum penalty of life imprisonment or the death penalty. Attorney General Merrick Garland called the Buffalo shooting a horrific attack on the city's black community. He says the department recognizes the threat posed by white supremacist violence, and he says it will be relentless in its efforts to combat it. Ryan Lucas, NPR News, Washington. Immigration authorities are taking new steps to prevent family separation. NPR's Joel Rose reports a directive issued today calls on ICE officers and agents to ask immigrants about their parental status during arrests. The head of U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement says agents and officers should, quote, affirmatively inquire, unquote, about the parental status of non-citizens. It's part of a broader effort to ensure that ICE is not unintentionally separating parents from their children at the southern border or when making arrests inside the country. The directive also calls for previously deported immigrants to be allowed back into the U.S. on a temporary basis for some child custody hearings. The directive is a clear break from the policies of former President Donald Trump, whose administration systematically separated more than 5,000 children from their parents at the border during 2017 and 2018. Joel Rose, NPR News. The U.S. is denouncing Russia for forcibly deporting, detaining, and interrogating between 900,000 and 1.6 million Ukrainian citizens. NPR's Eleanor Beardsley reports there are millions of Ukrainians living in a blackout under Russian occupation inside Ukraine. Kyiv resident Andriy Kononenko's aging parents are living behind enemy lines in his hometown in the occupied Kherson region by Crimea. He says they try to reassure him they're okay so he won't worry. Because I know they're not doing well and I know that health care is not immediately available. There's nothing. Kononenko says he wishes they could get out, but it's nearly impossible now. You know, you have to travel through about 50 checkpoints, Russian checkpoints, and they will take everything from you. They will undress you to see if you just don't have any tattoos, like patriotic tattoos. He says he will go in and get them as soon as the South is liberated. Eleanor Beardsley, NPR News, Kyiv. The producer of Price Index, a key measure of inflation at the wholesale level, took an even bigger bump up in June than expected. The government says wholesale inflation climbed 11.3 percent last month. Stocks closed mixed on Wall Street today. The Dow down 142 points. The Nasdaq was up three. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. The Boston Teachers Union and the Boston Public School District have tentatively agreed on terms for a new three-year contract. As WBUR's Carrie Young reports, it includes significant new support for teachers working with students who have special needs. Some of the biggest updates in the contract will address a major change to district policy next year. 
Starting in September, the district will make sure all of its schools can support high-needs students in the same setting as general education students. Currently, only a handful of schools have the resources to do that. Teachers Union President Jessica Tang praised Mayor Michelle Wu for her work in the negotiations. We have leaders in the city who believe in the power of labor and believe in the power of real relationships and the importance of building trust. Other contract provisions include a 2.5% yearly wage increase and an expansion of the parental leave policy. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Carrie Young. The MBTA says it has met all deadlines federal regulators put in place last month to improve safety on the transit system. The Federal Transit Administration ordered the T in June to address understaffing, to put in place new safety protocols, to speed up maintenance, and ensure workers have up-to-date certification. Today, the T said it has either done all of those things or made a plan to do them. The FTA is expected to issue a report next month on its investigation into safety problems on the T following a series of derailments and the dragging death of one passenger. Massachusetts Correction Officers Union is asking Governor Charlie Baker to reinstate officers who lost their jobs because they did not get vaccinated against the coronavirus. WBR's Deborah Becker has more. The union's board wrote a letter to Baker saying he should reinstate the 100 officers who were terminated because they did not get the vaccine. Kevin Flanagan, legislative representative for the Massachusetts Correction Officers Federated Union, says because COVID protocols have changed, the officers should get their jobs back. Policies have changed. Uh, There's no masking requirements inside of our prisons. There's no COVID vaccine identification uh, needed to enter any of our facilities. So we're just hoping the governor takes a look at this. The union sued over the governor's vaccine mandate, and that suit is pending. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Deborah Becker. Governor Baker's office has not responded to a request for comment on the letter from the correction officers. Tonight, a local musician returns to the area in Boston where members of the hate group Patriot Front allegedly assaulted them on July 2nd. The artist had to get stitches at the hospital after reportedly being shoved and knocked to the ground as the group marched through Boston. Nobody was arrested. As WBR's Christella Guerra reports, tonight's free concert will include dancers, poets, and several musicians. Charles Morel III says this show in the Copley Square Green was scheduled prior to the attack. It's a performance called Sweet Talk and centers around issues of social justice and race. The black artist says its meaning is now that much deeper. I'm still trying to pick up a saxophone to go out into the streets and continue. You know, it's just scary that I'm now in a world of my own thoughts where I'm like, am I safe to go out and play in general public? As a composer, music has always healed Morel. In this way, Morel plans to use music to offer beauty where there was violence earlier this month. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Cristela Guerra. 75 degrees in the Boston area, cloudy skies for the first part of the night, then turning clear, lows about 65 overnight. For tomorrow, beautiful sunny day, pretty comfortable, about 81 degrees tops. It is 75 degrees now in Boston at 6.08. WBUR supporters include the Doris Duke Charitable Foundation, which aims to support the well-being of people and the planet for a more creative, equitable, and sustainable future. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Elsa Chang. President Biden spent the day in Jerusalem working to reassure Israel that he is a loyal and trustworthy partner. He signed a security agreement with Israel's prime minister, vowing to make sure that Iran does not obtain a nuclear weapon. 
But there was a key difference in the way the two leaders spoke about this pledge. And to talk more about that, we're joined now by NPR White House correspondent Asma Khalid in Jerusalem. Hey, Asma. Hi there, Elsa. Hi. Okay, so I understand that you were in the room today when President Biden and Yair Lapid signed this pledge and spoke about it. What, what stood out to you in their remarks? So both President Biden and Israeli Prime Minister Yair Lapid agreed that they want to make sure Iran never develops a nuclear weapon. But also what struck me is that when they came in front of cameras and microphones, the two leaders disagreed rather openly on the best way to make sure that does not happen. Uh, take a listen to the Israeli Prime Minister. Words will not stop me, Mr. President. Diplomacy will not stop me. The only thing that will stop Iran is knowing if they continue to develop their nuclear program, the free world will use force. The only way to stop them is to put a credible military threat on the table. But when it came to President Biden, he was fairly clear that he still prefers to avoid a military option. I continue to believe that diplomacy is the best way to achieve this outcome. The Biden administration wants Iran to rejoin the nuclear deal, but the timeline for that is not clear, and the president has said he's not going to wait forever for a response from the Iranians. Well, Iran is, is going to be a huge topic when the president meets with other leaders from this region. For example, when he's in Saudi Arabia starting tomorrow, right? That's right. And historically, Saudi Arabia and Iran have been rivals engaged in these proxy fights across the Middle East. And the Saudis, you know, in addition to some of the other countries in the Arab Gulf, are also deeply concerned about Iran obtaining nuclear weapons. Right. And I imagine that will come up when Biden meets with the king and the crown prince, which will be like one of the most anticipated moments on this trip, right? Because President Biden has been facing all of this pressure over his decision to visit Saudi Arabia in the first place. Right. And this pressure is because the United States' own intelligence community has assessed that the crown prince approved of the operation in 2018 to kill journalist Jamal Khashoggi. Uh, Biden was asked during a press conference today twice whether he would raise Khashoggi's death during this meeting. I always bring up human rights. But my position on Khashoggi has been so clear. If anyone doesn't understand it in Saudi Arabia or anywhere else, then they haven't been around for a while. I mean, so it sounds like he stopped short of explicitly saying he would raise Khashoggi's death? Mm-hmm. That's right. And, you know, certainly on the campaign trail, he calls Saudi Arabia a pariah over this. So, you know, we'll see how the two men interact tomorrow. But today, Biden emphasized that he sees Saudi through a broader lens. He said he does not want Russia or China, for example, to gain more influence in the Middle East. And one last question real quick, Asma, because tomorrow Biden will meet with Palestinian leadership. Usually when a U.S. president goes to the Middle East, there are is always some discussion about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. So I'm curious, how is Biden approaching that? You know, Biden has reiterated multiple times that he supports a two-state solution to the conflict, but he hasn't put a whole lot of diplomatic muscle behind that. Um, he's hoping to repair the U.S. relationship with Palestinians. That was almost uh, severed under the former president. So Biden tomorrow will start that by meeting with Palestinian leader Mahmoud Abbas. That is MPR's Asma Khalid. Thank you, Asma. Happy to talk. Tomorrow, Biden plans to go to a hospital in a Palestinian neighborhood of Jerusalem that U.S. presidents have not visited in the past. Although Biden referred to Jerusalem as Israel's capital, he'll be making the visit without Israeli officials, seen as deference to Palestinian ties to the city. He's expected to announce millions of dollars in U.S. money for the Palestinian hospital network in Jerusalem. NPR's Daniel Estrin takes us inside two of those hospitals to explain the bigger meaning of Biden's visit there and what money can and cannot accomplish. When President Biden visits Augusta Victoria Hospital atop the Mount of Olives, 
He'll see a hundred-year-old stone building with a tall bell tower piercing Jerusalem's skyline and angels carved into the arched entrance. If Biden had the time, he could wander the grounds and see a microcosm of Palestinian life and its daily limitations. Biden would be able to meet 27-year-old colon cancer patient Nuha Hassanin, who says her health got worse while waiting months for Israel to approve her security permit just so she could leave the blockaded Gaza Strip to get here, the only hospital offering radiation treatment for Palestinians who live in the occupied territories. Or Biden could visit Dr. Ruba Rizik's pediatric open-heart surgery ward. This patient from Gaza, the, the other one is from Gaza, this is from West Bank. Biden could see them, but visits from their parents are restricted by Israel. They are not allowed to come every day. They have a permit, but for a few days. The neonatal unit has premature babies from Gaza, but the doctor in charge says sometimes their mothers don't have permission to stay with them in Jerusalem. All this is part of Israel's control of Palestinian movement, which Israel says it needs for security. The U.S. used to give these hospitals $25 million a year, but President Trump stopped that to pressure Palestinians on a peace deal with Israel. The Biden White House is reversing that and plans to announce more money tomorrow. Makassid Hospital Director Dr. Adnan Farhoud will use the money for kidney and liver transplants not accessible now for West Bank and Gaza Palestinians. We are planning to do liver transplant and kidney transplant and bone marrow trans, uh, transplant because we don't have these uh, services. The new money helps the cash-strapped Palestinian leadership stand on its feet. That stability is important to the U.S., which doesn't want the region to devolve into violence. When I asked the hospital director, who will meet the president tomorrow, what else he wishes Biden could give, he said. Let democracy build all over the world, not even in just in the United States. In the Western countries, they have elections each four years, and the people, they can vote and they select their presidents. He means elections for new leadership. Palestinian Authority President Mahmoud Abbas is in the 18th year of what was supposed to be a four-year term. The U.S. has not pressed for elections, concerned the Hamas militant group could win. Hospital fundraiser Suhail Miari has another wish. The money is not enough. What we are suffering from, allowing people, the, the moving in Palestine, south and north and Gaza, you know, we are, we are not terrorists, we are human beings, we are t- doctors, we are teachers, we are, we are, you know, and everybody, they put, they put us in, in one, you know, in, in, in one category. He's happy that Biden will be the first sitting U.S. president in this part of East Jerusalem, not just the old city's holy sites, but here on the Mount of Olives. Miari sees that as Biden's gesture toward Palestinians' dream of their own capital here one day. Daniel Estrin, NPR News, Jerusalem. It has been a chaotic start to the summer for many travelers as airlines struggled to meet surging demand. Tens of thousands of flights have been delayed or canceled. And now the Department of Transportation is stepping up pressure on the airlines on three fronts. The denial of refunds for canceled flights, charging extra fees for families to sit together, and the treatment of passengers with disabilities. NPR's David Shaper reports. Just how bad is it to fly this summer? I'm not speaking hyperbolically, but I can tell you, David, that um, this is the worst 
I've ever seen in the 37 years I've been around this industry. Bill McGee used to work in airline operations and is now an aviation consumer advocate with the American Economic Liberties Project. The fact is the airlines, their performance this summer is just absolutely awful. And I think, you know, there's going to have to be a reckoning. Consumer complaints against airlines so far this year are up more than 300 percent over pre-pandemic levels. So Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg said on Fox News Sunday that airlines need to fix their operations and improve customer service. Here's what we're doing about it. We'll collaborate with airlines when they're ready to take steps that are positive and proactive, uh, whether that's improvements in pay that are helping with hiring or flexibility in customer service. We're also going to enforce passenger and consumer rights. Along those lines, Buttigieg says the department has now concluded 10 investigations into airlines denying refunds to customers for canceled flights and that fines will likely be announced soon. And he says the DOT has launched 10 more such probes. But consumer advocates like Bill McGee are not satisfied. The investigation should have been over two years ago. McGee says there have been thousands of complaints against airlines for denying refunds for canceled flights since the start of the pandemic, and the DOT has been slow to act. The DOT is also telling airlines they'll face stricter regulations if they don't stop charging extra fees for families to sit together. Most airlines charge fees for preferred seating, like window and aisle seats, and for seats closer to the front of the plane. That can make it difficult for families with young children to book seats together without paying extra. Again, consumer advocate Bill McGee. And it's just mind-boggling that the airlines, of all the different ways they find to charge us fees and nickel and dime us, to do this, you know, separating young children, it's just absurd. And the DOT announced last week its first-ever Bill of Rights for Passengers with Disabilities. Kenneth Shiatani of the National Disability Rights Network says it spells out that passengers with disabilities are entitled to seating accommodations and assistance, among other rights. I do think that the important provision is the first one, which is the right to be treated with dignity and respect. I mean, we think that that's, you know, a very clear message to the airline industry and the airports. Shiotani says as difficult as air travel has been for most travelers this summer, it's especially trying for those with disabilities. He and others hope the Disabled Passengers Bill of Rights will usher in improvements in passenger assistance and service for everyone. David Shaper, NPR News, Chicago. listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR on Wall Street. The Dow lost about a half percent today, 143 points to close at 30,630. S&P gave up ground as well. It fell about a third of a percent to finish down at 3790. The Nasdaq gained a small fraction of a percent to end the day at 11,251. Franciscan Children's Hospital wants to construct a building in Brighton. The eight-story building would house inpatient medical and behavioral health units and outpatient programs. All inpatient rooms in the building would be single occupancy. The city and the state excuse me, need to give the go-ahead first. And the independent Harvard bookstore in Cambridge is opening a branch at the Prudential Center in Boston. It'll be the first time the Harvard bookstore has had a second location in its 90-year history. It's 620.
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Best Bees Company. Professionally managed beehives bring life to backyards and commercial spaces. Clients support pollinator research and keep the honey. Bestbees.com. And Volante Farms in Needham, offering farm-to-table meals to go from their kitchen. See Sunday supper menus and more at volantefarms.com. Cloudy skies for the first part of the night tonight, then clear skies, about 65 for a low for tomorrow. Lots of sunshine, highs about 81 degrees. 75 degrees now in the Boston area. This is WBUR. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Ari Shapiro. The brutal fighting in eastern Ukraine evokes memories of World War I. Soldiers are dying in trenches. Artillery rains down. The violence can be difficult to comprehend. And as NPR's Nathan Rott reports, there are concerns about what this type of warfare could be doing mentally to those on the front lines. Through three sets of plastic barriers in the back corner of an infectious disease hospital in southeast Ukraine, two Ukrainian soldiers are resting on narrow cots. Konstantin, who's recovering from shrapnel wounds in his leg, is playing solitaire on his phone. You winning? Always Sergei, who's dealing with an illness and severe concussion, sits up to greet us. How are you? Okay. Doing okay. We've agreed not to give Sergei or Konstantin's last names, as is now protocol with the Ukrainian military. We've also agreed not to reveal the exact location or name of this hospital. Medical facilities like schools and shopping malls have become a common target in Russia's war. War is a terrible thing. Terrible and made worse, both soldiers say, by the unusual type of war this has become. Sometimes you just lie in the trench with your gun, Konstantin says, and you think, why do I even need this gun? Because there's nobody to shoot. The fighting is all happening from a distance. Still, he and Sergei, who narrowly avoided being blown up when he got his concussion, plan to return to the front lines. You want to go back. (laughs) Even after having an explosion happen right next to you? Of course, I will be there for my country, for my children when I get better, because they outnumber us. That's why we have to go back and we have to protect our country. This is something that Alexander Federitz hears all of the time. Federitz is a psychologist who meets with Ukrainian soldiers back from the front line. We've met him in a city park in Dnipro next to a memorial for soldiers killed in eastern Ukraine's 2014 conflict. The thing that brings trauma is not because they have to survive the fighting. It's that they can't fight back and they can't get their wounded. That makes the most difficult. By even the most modest estimates, tens of thousands of people have died since Russia's invasion began. Military casualties are closely guarded by both sides, but Ukrainian officials have said that as many as 200 of their soldiers are dying every day. Hundreds more are wounded, and it's the job of licensed therapists like Federitz and his colleague, Tatiana Yermolaeva, to meet with them to assess whether they're mentally and emotionally ready to return to the fight. 
больше сказать. То есть те люди, которые... This war is still very different. Even people who are experienced, experienced soldiers, they are broken because of what they see, all the violence that they face. Then there's the civilian soldiers, Yermolaeva says. More than 100,000 civilians have enlisted in Ukraine's territorial defense since Russia invaded in February. Many of the people Yermolaeva's met with were teachers, store clerks, drivers, until just a few months ago. The only war they'd seen was in movies. But they wanted to help. That was the case for the 20-year-old son of Alesa Olhovic. Another Dnipro-based psychologist who's been meeting with soldiers. Oholvik's office is decorated with stuffed animals, entertainment for the families she's been meeting with who have had to flee their homes. Nobody in Ukraine is able to really relax, she says. There's a background tension from air alarms and missile strikes. But for soldiers like her son, it's all pronounced. For example, she says, we went on a drive with my son in the countryside this weekend, and he tried to check the situation around him all of the time. He's just super alert. Yes, yeah, super alert. Mm-hmm. This is uh, know-how that people from the front. Ohovic and other psychologists NPR talked to for the story say the real challenge will come later, after the war. Many of the soldiers they saw in the years after the 2014 fighting suffered from post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD. But Ukraine isn't post anything yet, they say. Uh, There's a meme in Ukraine now, Olkovic says, that jokes, look for a good psychologist now, because it'll cost a lot more after the war. Yes. <laughs> I mean, I, I appreciate that Ukrainians have so much humor, given everything else. Black humor is the most uh, important thing in our life, yes. And it will be needed, she says, for a while yet. Nathan Rott, NPR News, Dnipro, Ukraine. In Russia, the trial of U.S. basketball star Brittany Griner on drug smuggling charges resumed today. It was Griner's first hearing since she pleaded guilty last week to charges that could mean a prison term of 10 years. From Moscow, NPR's Charles Maines was at the courthouse and has this report. During Brittany Griner's last hearing, the WNBA star admitted she accidentally left vape cartridges containing hash oil in her bags as she arrived to Moscow for off-season play last February. But today, Griner didn't testify. Instead, it was a chance to hear from those in Russia who knew Griner best. Maxim Rybkov, who runs Griner's Russian team, UMMC, in the city of Ekaterinburg, took the stand as a witness in her defense. He described recruiting a basketball prodigy to come play in a far-off land back in 2014 and the impact it had on both of them. Brittany liked Russia, and she came to help us, said Ripkov. And Griner, he said, was an irreplaceable part of the team's success, not only winning championships at home but in Europe and winning over Russians to the game of women's basketball, as he told NPR in an interview after the hearing. Russian people, our Russian fans, love her because of her being the sportsman and the personality. As she is. UMMC captain and former WNBA player Yevgenia Bilyakova also testified. She described Griner as the heart of their team and an active presence off the court, joining teammates for meet and greets with Russian kids and even supporting Ekaterinburg's local animal shelter. Our team is our family. It's like bad things happen to all of us, and it's very important to be with the this person. So we need her, she needs us, that's it. 
Greiner, who listened through an interpreter as she sat in a locked cage in the courtroom, was clearly moved by her friend's testimony, a fact that in turn clearly moved them. Again, UMMC's Maxime Rybkov. It was maybe the first time in seven years when I saw her crying, and I cannot understand even how hard it's, it's for her the recent five months, and uh, I really hope she will fight through it. Rykov said UMMC had been quietly playing a role in Griner's legal defense and lobbying for her outside the media spotlight. Uh, we're very careful in speaking in order to escape any harm to her. Griner's arrest and trial has unfolded against the backdrop of cratering U.S.-Russian relations over the Kremlin's actions in Ukraine. Yet even as the White House has labeled Griner wrongfully detained and faced growing public pressure to bring her home, Russia has suggested a prisoner swap might be in the offing. But Russia's foreign ministry today said that would only happen behind closed doors and only after the trial had run its course. Charles Maines, NPR News, Moscow. This is NPR News. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Peabody Essex Museum. Patrick Kelly, Runway of Love, celebrates the genius of a self-taught designer who changed fashion forever. On view now. Tickets at PEM.org. Margulies Peruzzi, designing buildings and inspired workplaces that help companies reach their goals. Hybrid workplace strategy reports and more at MPArchitectsBoston.com. And Direct Hire and Auto Service, proud to support WBUR and public radio to help keep quality programming alive. DirectHire.com.